listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway. Only on Sputnik Radio. After weeks in which it sometimes seemed the United States was about to declare war on China, this weekend all the guns have switched back to Russia. Turns out that the Taliban were only waiting for some Russian rubles before they took a pot shot or two at US and even UK troops in the occupation of Afghanistan, which has now gone on longer than the First and Second World Wars put together. In fact, twice the length. In fact, more than that. It's a crazy hypothesis, which I intend to explore. And having spent the last few weeks turning their guns on the statue of slavers, the Black Lives Matter movement are now targeting Abraham Lincoln, who freed the slaves. Go figure, as they say in the United States of America. Rebecca Long Bailey, the left-wing challenger to Sir Keir Starmer for leader of the Labour Party, is no more. Was she ever? But now she is a martyr. What's going to happen next in the British Labour Party? As Benjamin Netanyahu prepares to annex most of the Palestinian West Bank, Keir Starmer has launched a war against his own party members standing up for the victims of that illegal theft of land and the occupation of Palestine. There's lots to talk about tonight. It's going to be a bumpy ride, so fasten your seatbelts. This is a radio show, but with pictures. Stay tuned. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. The mother of all talk shows. The only education you can get for free. George Galloway. This is Radio Sputnik. And this is London, but coming to you, of course, all over the world. Thanks to the wonders of the internet and sputniknews.com. We're on FM in the Washington, D.C. area. Big audience building up there, by the way, on 105.5 on FM. And you can listen on AM across the United States, from sea to shining sea, from burning city to burning city. You can listen online, of course, at sputniknews.com. And hundreds of thousands of you are listening on these platforms but more than half a million of you for the 10th straight week in a row are watching as well as listening. The mother of all talk shows, a truly global audience, a global university of the airwaves. And if you're watching it on Facebook, then please share it with all of your friends, all of your contacts on Facebook. We intend to make the regular one million audience uh, by the end of this year, with your help, God willing. You can watch on my Facebook page, George Galloway Official, Blue Tick, or on any of RT's multiple Facebook platforms. 
Ditto on YouTube. You can watch on my YouTube channel, George Galloway Official, and do subscribe while you're there. There's plenty of good stuff on there. Or on RT's multiple YouTube channels. You can even watch on Twitter and on Instagram. Well, however you're watching or listening, we've got a show for you tonight because it's hard to keep up with the news as it develops. Increasing levels, new dimensions of absurdity, of atrocity are being reached across the world. Let me start with the absurdity inside the British Labour Party. Somebody called Rebecca Long-Bailey that nobody outside of Britain will ever have heard of and hardly anyone in Britain has ever heard of. She was the left-wing Corbyn supporting candidate, although supporting him as the rope supports the hanging man by the end. She was, if you like, the continuity Corbyn candidate just three or four months ago against the Blairite candidate Sir Keir Starmer, the British state's former chief prosecutor. What could possibly uh, go wrong? Uh, anyway, she was heavily defeated, but given a consolation prize, a low-profile portfolio, they thought, as the shadow education secretary. Uh, certainly, they didn't allow her to talk much about education, not least because she, supported by the teaching trade unions, thought that rushing our children back to school in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic was a bad idea, so they sent out other Blairite lieutenants to talk about schools more often than she was able to be. But then, unwisely, she retweeted an article from the independent newspaper uh, that's owned by the former KGB resident in London, whom I knew well. Know what I'm saying? He now owns the independent newspaper and they published a splendid article uh, by an actress called Maxine Peake, a bit of an icon, actually, in left-wing politics in Britain, in which, en passant, she mentioned uh, that many US police departments were learning their brutal tactics in Israel, where they were going, <laughs> not making this up, American cops going to Israel for training in how to subdue uh, a recalcitrant and, dare I say, occupied population. Now, this all had the benefit of being indisputably true. In fact, the Minneapolis Police Department boasted on their website about the training they had received in Israel. Uh, the virtual Jewish library has given extensive coverage to this new practice of many US police forces obtaining training in Israel. It is a matter of public record in Israel, in the Journal of Public Record in Israel, Haaretz, on umpteen occasions. And this was mentioned by Maxine Peake in her article, which the Independent published. And this was retweeted by Rebecca Long-Bailey, more, I think, as a tribute to her distinguished constituent, Maxine Peake. And within hours, she was sacked by Sir Keir Starmer from the Labour front bench. Does that constitute a purge? Uh, without a doubt, because she was the last 
Corbynite standing on the Labour front bench in the shadow cabinet. And so in just a few months, Labour has gone from having a Jeremy Corbyn, John McDonnell leadership, a Corbyn McDonnell dominated national executive, a front bench dominated by Corbyn and McDonnell in just three months to the complete opposite. Blairism is back, just when you thought it was safe to get back in the water. However, this poses a major problem now for Keir Starmer. First of all, because he defined what Maxine Peake said in this article, which by the way, the Independent, having published it, then congratulated Starmer for sacking someone for retweeting their article. So much for the uh, Western media, about which more later, I promise you. Uh, but the problem for Starmer is that the conflation of criticism of the Israeli police force uh, with Judaism as anti-Semitism is itself anti-Semitic. And someone has now tabled an official complaint in the Labour Party's complaints procedure accusing Keir Starmer of anti-Semitism. This one will run and run. The second problem is that Mr Netanyahu is next week, this week coming, going to rip up 50 years of international law, rip up the Oslo Agreement, rip up the absurdly named peace process and officially confiscate, bring into Israel the land that Israel has occupied on the west bank of the River Jordan ever since 1967, 53 years, a long time in anybody's lifetime. And so Labour members are now in a situation where they will be forced to remain silent about this atrocity that Mr Netanyahu intends to pursue against the wishes of every government in the whole world except the government of Donald J. Trump and Gerard Kushner. And so I'm asking in this poll, number one, is the Labour Party engaged in a purge? A, yes, B, no. You can vote now on my Twitter page. Uh, but it is a purge, and it is an invitation uh, to self-censorship, the arrow that flies in the night. You don't see it, but it reaches its target nonetheless. Labour members are now living under a reign of intellectual terror on the subject of Israel-Palestine. And how many of them are going to be purged if they step out of line? How many of them, my experience this week, rather a lot, are going to rip up their Labour Party cards rather than wait to be picked off one by one? So that's one of the subjects that we'll be dealing with this evening. Of course, the coronavirus crisis uh, continues apace in Britain. An average of 140 people die every day of the coronavirus. If 140 people died every day from a terrorist attack, well, it would be the biggest story in the country, but it isn't here because our government has declared effectively that the crisis is over, except that it isn't the first wave 
isn't. Less than 10% of our people have caught the coronavirus yet, and 65,000 of us have died. As a result, do the maths. When 20% of us have got it, if 50% of us get it, and the death rates rise exponentially, well, we are in the mother of all public health crises. But you wouldn't think it. Uh, there's a march going on in central London right now for black trans rights, I think it says, though there are virtually no black people on it, and I didn't see that many trans people, none that stood out uh, anyway, but thousands of people in close proximity, with no social distancing, are out demonstrating in Britain again today. And half a million people, reportedly, crammed onto the beach at Bournemouth in the week on the hottest day of the year. I've no idea where they went to the toilet, but half a million people is a lot of coronavirus and a lot of litter and trash. So we'll be talking about what's next on the coronavirus with Ranjit Bra, doctor, physician, surgeon, uh, as always in the third hour of the mother of all talk shows this evening. It's still rampant in the United States. In one state after another this week, figures of increases of hundreds of percent of cases is being reported. I work every night on RT America, and just before I come on, I hear the roundup. Texas, Florida, all kinds of places. Trump territory, by the way, is suffering vaulting increases in the number of people with coronavirus. But still, Trump pushes on. The heat didn't do what he said it would do. Uh, the uh, drugs that he's punted didn't do what he said they would do. But actually now uh, the coronavirus may be the least of his problems. That and the collapsing economy in the United States is definitely placing a gigantic question mark now on his ability to be re-elected in November. The only saving grace for Donald Trump is that the man the Democrats have put up against him is a man that isn't fit to be let out alone and isn't allowed out alone. In fact, he isn't allowed out at all. He presumably scripted, delivers homilies into a camera in his basement, in his house in Delaware. Now, if he can get all the way to the election that way, he might have a chance of doing it. He hasn't had a press conference since he was chosen as the presumptive candidate for the Democratic Party. If he ever does have to face the press, and when he has to face the hundreds of millions of dollars of attack ads, which the Trump camp are going to launch at him, he may crumble under the pressure. We'll see. But in any case, a new front opened up this weekend, and I have to deal with it in the next few minutes. After what seems like months of China being public enemy number one, suddenly it's back to Russia. According to the New York Times, 
confirmed by the Washington Post and the other major newspapers in the United States, the Taliban have been taking the ruble, taking the ruble from President Putin as payment for, bounty for, uh, the killing of occupation troops. No scintilla of evidence is offered. Uh, the stories are based entirely on briefings from inside the US intelligence community, with each newspaper speaking presumably to the same spooks and plastering it over their front page. And now, when I looked earlier before the show, uh, the charge of treason is being leveled again at President Donald Trump because they say he knew that this was being done and said and did nothing about it. Now, there are a number of problems uh, with this story. The first one is anybody who thinks the Taliban need Russian money to fire shots at American occupiers hasn't been paying attention to the history over the last nearly 40 years of Afghan history. They really know nothing about it. You see, the Afghan people have been fighting foreign armies on their soil uh, since 1980. And before that, centuries before that, were fighting every foreign army uh, that arrived in their country, uh, from Alexander the Great all the way to George W. Bush, not so great. They didn't require foreign funding to do so. It's stretching it a bit that they would require foreign funding to do it now. But that's not the only problem with the hypothesis. A bigger problem is that the Taliban are not killing American or British soldiers at all. There's a ceasefire. There's a peace process. The Taliban are fighting the puppet Afghan government forces, not the foreign forces. Although the foreign forces are still fighting them from the sky. A third problem, and the biggest of all, is this. There was a foreign funder of the Islamist fanatics in Afghanistan, but it was not Russia. In fact, the Russians were the victims of it. It was the United States of America. I've just watched two brilliant interviews given by Hillary Clinton, no less, in which she describes in great detail how the United States poured money, materiel, men, propaganda into building up the Islamist monster in Afghanistan with the precise purpose of killing Russians. So this story turns on its absolute head, actually reverses the actual reality, which is that the people who paid the Taliban, the people who paid Al-Qaeda, the people who paid ISIS, the people who paid every one of the alphabet soup of Islamist extremist organizations over the last decades 
was not Russia, which was actually fighting them on the battlefield in Syria while we were their air force and their chief propagandists. This Islamist monster is the creation of not Russia, but the United States itself. So, so much for governments and politicians, liars, almost everyone. But what does it say about the Western media? Every single one of which across the entire Western world has repeated this baseless, fact-free, idiotic charge against Russia today on their front pages and on their news bulletins. What it says is we don't have a free media at all. We have a collection of hired hirelings whose job is to be the stenographer of the power in the country in which they are operating, which is the exact obverse of what journalism is supposed to do and be, which might explain why Julian Assange continues to languish in Britain's Guantanamo Bay at Belmarsh Prison in South London. This is the mother of all talk shows. There's much more of this over the next two hours and 40 minutes. This is the mother of all talk shows. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Tune in every Thursday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker for the regular segment called Veterans for Peace, where we focus on the contemporary issues of war and peace that affect veterans, their families, the country, and the world as a whole. Veterans for Peace President Jerry Condon joins the show every Thursday. Hear about this and more every Thursday right here on Radio Sputnik. We are above all the latest developments, and we don't take any sides. Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. The mother of all talk shows. With George Galloway. The world is our classroom. And you're welcome to sit in and join the seminar. Is the Labour Party engaged in a purge? A, yes, 82%. B, no, 18%. You can vote now on my Twitter page. 409 people have done so in the first few minutes of the show. Now, uh, Rania Kalek is always a welcome and popular guest here on the mother of all talk shows. She's a journalist, a TV presenter, a writer, and an all-round expert on what's happening in the United States. I'm glad to say she joins us now. Rania, welcome back to the mother of all talk shows. You grace us with your <laughs> wonderful uh, presence. Thank you uh, again for coming. Now, Let's start with this insanity uh, that has swept the United States media uh, in which it turns out uh, that the warlike Taliban were only prepared to shoot American soldiers if the Russians paid them to. Over to you. It's unbelievable. 
unbelievable. It's one of the most unbelievable stories I've ever seen. I mean, on Friday, uh, the New York Times broke this story that was so obviously planted by U.S. intelligence officials. They literally say throughout the piece, according to unnamed U.S. intelligence officials, over and over and over again, uh, saying that, you know, America, the, the Russians were giving out bounties to the Taliban to kill U.S. troops. It was, like usual, accepted as gospel by the rest of the American corporate media, and they've all been running with it, despite the fact that it's based on, you know, the the claims of unnamed officials, just like Iraq WMDs were based on unnamed claims of officials. And what's really fascinating about this is, like you mentioned, you know, as if the Taliban needed to be given an incentive, a monetary incentive to attack the Americans. Since the Americans invaded Afghanistan in 2001, there has been an ongoing uh, insurgency against the foreign occupier. Nobody needs to pay this insurgency. It's been ongoing. And what's even more interesting about this is in so many ways, it's projection. Because this is actually what the U.S. did in the 1980s. I'm sure many of your viewers you know, know that in the 1980s, the U.S. armed and funded a um, Islamic, uh, a bunch of Islamic militant groups, the Mujahideen, to try and uh, overthrow the Soviet-backed government in Afghanistan. Um, and so they were actually arming and paying Islamic militants in Afghanistan to kill Russian soldiers. So perhaps this is part of that projection is to turn it around and blame it on them. But then there's also the curious timing of this, right? Um, the fact that, that Russia is actually coordinating peace talks right now between the U.S.-backed Afghan government and the Taliban that's set to take place in Qatar, uh, that's, that's ongoing as we speak. So there is an agenda behind this sort of gossip um, that's being spread by the media right now, which is to sabotage those peace talks. And no one seems to be taking that in mind. Um, and there's also this other aspect of it where you kind of see an attempt to resurrect the Russiagate uh, hysteria. Uh, there's like an entire grifting apparatus in place of all these people who made lots of money spreading the Russiagate narrative, even though it was false. And now that that's faded away, this is another way for people to get back on TV and to sell their, their Russiagate books again, is to, to rev up this narrative. So there's all kinds of things wrapped up in this new story um, that so far doesn't actually have any verification to it. We have a kind of schizophrenia at work here. Uh, the, the right of American politics has gone completely bananas against China. Uh, mm -hmm. Kung flu, although it turns out actually maybe started in Barcelona of all places. The Spanish flu wasn't Spanish, uh, but the Kung flu might turn out to have been <laughs> Spanish. Uh, the right is berserk against China. And the so-called left, the Democrats and the liberal media, uh, is berserk about Russia. All the while, uh, your people are going down like flies with coronavirus, and your economy is going down the tube. And this is the most obvious national convulsion of look over there uh, that I think any of us have ever seen, Rania. A hundred percent. And, you know, you and I, I, I've been on your show a couple times in the last few months, and every time I come on, the coronavirus situation in the U.S. gets worse. And it's gotten so bad to the point where nobody even cares anymore. Uh, oh, you know, a hundred, I don't even know how many Americans at this point died. A couple weeks ago, it was 120,000. People don't even pay attention to the number anymore. We have more cases in a day yesterday than we've had since this virus started. Um, it's, it's incredible. It's 
the officials in this country have given up. They don't care. We're just, we're, we don't have a wave in America. We've got this like tsunami that's just an ongoing, you know, the tip of the tsunami, the peak is just stays peaking. It's normal now. Um, and people are angry. People are also jobless. We have over 30 million people in America who've lost their jobs because of the uh, lockdowns from the pandemic. And, you know, a lot of those unemployment benefits are about to run out. And you also have this um, this mass uprising across the country against police brutality that took place over the past month, which is pretty unprecedented in the U.S., at least in my lifetime, uh, to see protests like this across the country. Um, so a lot is happening. There's like unrest in America right now, and there's more unrest on the horizon if things don't change. And rather than actually change um, the system of mass inequality that's only getting worse because of the pandemic as people are dying in mass, uh, what you see, I think, is what you're saying, an attempt from elites to also divert attention. And that's with the China hysteria and now the resurrection of the Russia hysteria. But, you know, something I noticed is that at the end of the day, Americans aren't falling for it this time, mostly because their immediate lives are impacted so deeply by the ramifications of this virus. They don't have time to care about Russia and China and what US unnamed US intelligence officials are saying in the New York Times. They're more concerned about, am I gonna be able to pay my rent? Am I gonna be able to pay my mortgage? Is, you know, am I gonna be able to send my kids back to school? Um, am I gonna have a job in two months? Uh, what am I gonna do when unemployment benefits run out? Where am I gonna, how am I gonna buy food? These are the kinds of things that most Americans are concerned about right now. And the disconnect, I don't think, has ever been more um, severe than it is right now between American elites and, and the general population. And in that extraordinary picture that you just painted, the Democrats have fielded crazy Joe Biden. How's he doing? <laughs> well, you know, because Donald Trump is so reviled at the moment um, and because his policies have had such a negative um, impact, the, you know, his neglect over the coronavirus and just the way he's handled the unrest across the country with protests by, you know, being even more divisive and, pol and more polarizing. Um, People, you know, are at, he's actually lost a, a pretty big chunk of support for now. What that means for November, you know, we can't really make too many assumptions right now uh, based on what's going on and, and, and make conclusions about November. But as far as polls go, Joe Biden is doing better. But you have to, I mean, you have to take into account he, he's doing better than Trump because Trump is so awful. Um, you know, Joe Biden is, isn't, his, his, uh, he still has really high negative, negativity ratings. He's not the most popular person. But at this point, it's kind of like you could run my pinky finger against Donald Trump and it would pull better because of how dissatisfied Americans are with him right now. But I think there's something else interesting going on in the country as well as we just had some new uh, primary elections but the Democrats and Republicans, where people run for the, you know, the uh, in the primary races for various uh, seats across the country for Congress, and in a couple of those seats, uh, the progressive challenger actually beat the corporate mainstream Biden-backed candidate. Uh, we saw that happen in in one of, in New York's uh, 16th district with Jabal Bowman against Elliot Engel. Elliot Engel is probably one of the most pro-war Democratic neocons in Congress. Um, and he's been in Congress since 1989. So that was a pretty big deal to see him unseated. So I think you're going to see more of that 
going forward. And I think that's where the more interesting stuff when it comes to elections is taking place uh, between what's going on with the sort of more progressive wing of the Democratic Party versus the more mainstream wing. Uh, but in the meantime, yeah, I mean, Trump is uh, definitely falling in the polls and it's to the benefit of Joe Biden. Now, uh, let me press you on, therefore, his vice presidential pick, because uh, with a president inches from senility, <laughs> even if Biden does win, it can't be long, surely, before uh, Article 25 is triggered. Uh, poor old Joe is uh, described as no longer up to the job, and the vice president then steps in. Uh, who was that? Who would that be? Well, right now, people are talking about a handful of uh, names that keep being floated in the media, like Stacey Abrams and uh, Kamala Harris, because of uh, the protests across the country against police brutality. Uh, it's rumored that, you know, Joe Biden is looking to pick a woman of color, uh, which is great, right? It's, it's a big milestone to have a woman of, co of color be vice president should Joe Biden win. However, he's, of course, going to pick somebody who's as corporate and as right wing of a Democrat as he is. Uh, so at the end of the day, the policies won't change, but the face of those policies might. Um, so that's what we're looking at right now. We're looking at Joe Biden trying to use identity politics to appease the sort of progressive wing of the Democratic Party by saying, oh, look, I, I picked a woman of color. See, I'm, you know, I'm progressive, too, without actually making any real uh, policy changes. But as far I mean, I, I have no confidence that he's going to pick somebody who's actually progressive. He'll pick someone like Stacey Abrams or Kamala Harris, which is, you know, these are our corporate mainstream Democrats who are just like Joe Biden uh, with a different face. Uh, now, lastly, and I'm grateful for your time, the, uh, the protests and the statues that are being targeted uh, have begun, it seems, reading from here, uh, to become more provocative, more controversial, more divisive. The ultimate, perhaps, being... Uh, the attempt and the threat to destroy statues to President Lincoln himself. Uh, is that popular amongst the, uh, the protesting classes? Is there a division about this kind of thing? Is this going to run out of steam, do you think? There's absolutely a division over this. Uh, you know, it started a couple weeks ago when we saw Ulysses S. Grant uh, statue being uh, pulled down in San Francisco. Grant was, of course, the leader of the union or the, the general who led the union to the, defeat the Confederacy. So there are divisions within uh, protests about removing statues to people who represent the side that defeated the Confederacy uh, and defeated slavery. Um, and as far as the general population, I mean, the general population does is not supportive of the idea of taking down statues to people like, like Lincoln. But at the end of the day, you know, it's, it is, well, it's nice to see, you know, uh, in the immediate aftermath to see statues to racists being taken down, uh, particularly when it's symbols of the Confederacy. I think this is really symbolic, and if that's what people want to focus on, fine. But I do think, it, it, to a degree, it does lose, um, it does take attention away from the systemic changes that we need when everything becomes about taking down statues and memorials. Um, you know, I'm not debating whether that's good or bad. It's just a matter of changing the names of things and taking down statues doesn't change 
you know, the funding, the, the level of funding and militarization of police, it doesn't change the racism and classism that plagues our system that leads to police killing uh, people of color, but also other poor people as well. That doesn't change by tearing down statues. So my concern is not necessarily about the statues coming down, but more about is this going to become the primary focus of these protests, which have a lot of momentum and have a lot of sympathy across the country, I certainly hope that's not the case. I really hope that people can, you know, keep their eye on the ball, which is actually changing the system that we have, rather than just making cosmetic changes uh, that make us feel good for a few moments. Rania Kalek, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows from the United States. Uh, here's the poll. Is the Labour Party engaged in a purge? Yes. 85% up to uh, B, no, 15% down to. You can vote now on my Twitter page. Let me take a 60 second break. I'll be right back. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at sputniknews.com. Tune in every Thursday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker for the regular segment called Veterans for Peace, where we focus on the contemporary issues of war and peace that affect veterans, their families, the country, and the world as a whole. Veterans for Peace President Jerry Condon joins the show every Thursday. Hear about this and more every Thursday right here on Radio Sputnik. We are above all the latest developments, and we don't take any sides. Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. The mother of all talk shows. With George Galloway. The world is our classroom. And you're welcome to sit in and join the seminar. I suggest you get your calls in early tonight. Early signs are that it's going to be very busy indeed. Uh, if you're calling us from the United Kingdom, it's 0207 That's 0207 7982255. If you're calling us from the United States, it's 001757744480. Or you can tweet us, of course, at George Galloway or at RTUK News, preferably both. Now, social media comments coming in thick and fast. Derrida says uh, the Labour purge is doomed to fail. That cliff edge. This party is dying to go over. I guess we are mere spectators now, watching the stupidity of a central executive. We need a credible third party now. It seems to me they need that in the United States too. Andy says it was never about that tweet. It's about shutting down the left. And Michael says, definitely, although I do think it was terribly naive of Rebecca Long-Bailey to retweet Maxine Peake's interview. Still, there's no doubt that Starmer and his cronies are out to eradicate once and for all every last reminder of Corbyn. And on Instagram, uh, an Instagram user says, Blair is a disgrace to the Labour Party. And Emirtha says, amazing how quickly Starmer acted on this, but hasn't acted on anything else. Quite forensic, really. And on Twitter, Lisa says, Good morning from New Zealand, George. Good morning to all my friends down under. And on Facebook, AJD says salute to the teacher. 
GG, thank you for that. Rene says, greetings from Cape Town, South Africa. My favorite city in all the world, Rene. And Paul says, Cork City, Ireland here. Would be interesting to hear your take on the current affairs in Irish politics, Mr. Galloway. Look forward to the show every week. Refreshing, honest news. Uh, well, the short takeaway, Paul, is never trust a green. Not in Ireland or more or less anywhere else. That's my take. Uh, and on YouTube, a user says, outdoor protests in the USA produced zero new cases of coronavirus. Facts. Well, you don't actually provide any facts, Mr. User. Only an assertion that seems um, contrary to logic. Uh, look, uh, breaking news. Here's the FA Cup semi-final draw. It's Manchester United versus Chelsea. Wow. Or Arsenal against either Newcastle or Manchester City, who are playing now. We'll bring you the score. Manchester United versus Chelsea at Wembley. Well, my children will be very happy to hear it. Now, look, every week I do a short for RT. This week it was about the Venezuelan gold, which the Bank of England is being uh, tested on in the High Court in London right now. And the verdict may come tomorrow or perhaps on Tuesday. Uh, the government of Venezuela wants its gold back. The Bank of England, without even wearing a mask, has decided to steal it. Take a look. A battle royal is underway at the High Court in London, over a billion dollars worth of solid gold. The gold, of course, belongs to Venezuela, and the court is being asked whether or not it will accede to the legalization of theft, of international piracy, of brigandry, without the robbers even having the courtesy to wear a mask. You may very well ask why a country like Venezuela trusted London with its sovereign wealth. Unfortunately, a very significant number of countries of the Global South have done so. The only alternative, I suppose, being the Federal Reserve in the United States of America, which you might think is marginally less trustworthy, or at least until now. The fact that the gold belongs to Venezuela is not at issue. It can hardly be. It was deposited in the Bank of England by the recognized government of Venezuela at the time, and the recognized government of Venezuela at this time wants the money to be sent to the United Nations in New York for the development program work on coronavirus in Venezuela. Now, Venezuela has done fantastically well in combating COVID-19. Only 4,500 cases have been recorded and only 45 people have died from the disease, compared to Britain, where 65,000 people have died from the disease. But nonetheless, the parlous economic condition of Venezuela, with poverty, malnourishment, widespread as a result of United States and international sanctions and embargo on the country, is such 
that the sovereign government of Venezuela has asked the UN to administer the funds on their behalf for the relief of the people. What kind of court, what kind of government, what kind of Bank of England uh, could resist such a cry from the heart? Uh, well, the answer is this kind of British government and this kind of Bank of England. And we'll find out soon whether this kind of high court in London is prepared to legalize the brazen theft of a billion dollars of gold bullion. The British government is among 50-odd other governments in the world that recognize a man in the street called Juan Guaido who appointed himself as the president of Venezuela. But that holds absolutely no water in international law because the vast majority of countries in the world continue to recognize the legitimate elected government of Nicolas Maduro. And it's his government that holds the seat in the United Nations, which means international law is on his side. It is completely false for the British government to claim, as they have claimed, that they do not recognize the government of Nicolas Maduro. That's a lie. They recognize him every day when their diplomats in New York talk to his diplomats in New York, in the canteen or in the fora themselves of the United Nations, the sovereign international body in the world. So I'm afraid uh, there is nothing that the British High Court can do except allow the legitimate elected government of Venezuela to have their money. It's not even as if they're asking for it for themselves. They're asking for it to be sent to the United Nations and spent by the United Nations. There's nothing the High Court can do on that unless the High Court wants to, and for all time, kill the idea that other people's sovereign wealth will be safe in the vaults of the Bank of England. It used to be a thing when I was growing up. It was a phrase, as safe as the Bank of England. But it may turn out in the next day or two that the Bank of England ain't very safe at all. Have something to say? Do you disagree with George? Then call us now and give us your view. Is the Labour Party engaged in a purge? A, yes, 85%. And B, no, 15%. Who are the 15? And why don't you think it's a purge? Let's go to the phone lines. First call of the night is George in Belfast in Ireland. Go ahead, George. Hi, George. Hi. Uh, I'm a little bit down, downbeat, um, probably because of the vacuum which has been created. I'm looking at the political spectrum across the whole of the world, and all I can see, to be perfectly honest, is nothing more than a leaning, a push towards the right. The genuine socialist politicians that we have known and loved are being uh, pushed away from mainstream, that there's an awful lot of the media which is trying to uh, get their particular agenda over and it's isolating an awful lot of people who at the bottom end of society have very, very few real voices to help them out. And I'm now wondering, I'm desperate to think that we cannot, we will not have a socialist government in the United Kingdom. Now, if I even expand that to Ireland, what has gone on 
in the Republic of Ireland is nothing short of a scandal. Mm. Whenever three disparate parties can cobble together some kind of a fake coalition to keep the second largest party away from the control of government is absolutely disgraceful and non-democratic. And I weep for democracy. I really weep for it, and I don't know what to do. Well, uh, it's a powerful point, uh, George. It reminded me when I was thinking about it earlier uh, of what happened to me in the Rhondda constituency in 1982 in South Wales, uh, where I got, I was running to be the parliamentary candidate there, uh, and uh, I got more nominations than all of the other candidates put together. So the supporters of all of the other candidates came together and refused to put me on the shortlist. And that's exactly what's happened to Sinn Féin uh, in the Irish Republic. Uh, the uh, party which won very marginally more members of the Doyle than them could not form a government on its own, so it has formed a government with people that hate its guts, uh, but just happen to hate Sinn Féin more. And so you've got a government of the ancient civil war enemies, Fianna Foyle and Fianna Gael, and kept in power by the Green Party. Of all people, the Greens are going to keep the right-wing neoliberal coalition government in power in Dublin. I don't know if they've got a, a banning of plastic bags or uh, some other such bagatelle uh, for their labours, uh, but it'll be no surprise to me if it later turns out that that's what they have sold their country for. The good news, though, is that Mary Lou MacDonald is now the leader of the opposition, the unchallengeable uh, and incontestable leader of the opposition in Ireland. And as I have zero confidence that this monstra, hydra-headed, uh, neoliberal coalition government in Dublin can do anything to solve the problems of the people in Ireland, I expect that next time round, whenever that is, and it might be sooner than you think, George, uh, that Sinn Féin will win a thumping victory. Indeed, if they'd put up enough candidates last time, they would already be in government. Thanks for the call. Let's go to New Orleans. Joseph in New Orleans. Go ahead, Joseph. Well, how you doing there, George? Oh, good. Nice to hear you, we're sir. Gonna make it. We're going to make it, George. We don't know how we're going to make it because a lot of us are afraid here, George. We know a lot of people don't want to say what's going on. You know, after they killed Epstein, I guess the pandemic was the next move for your new world order. That's what we feel. Here in America, a lot of us are afraid. A lot of us think we're being murdered at the hospitals. And uh, we think the Freemasons are behind the mob and the cartel. The Freemasons? Now, wife, where do the Freemasons fit in? Where do they fit in? Well, when I was a little boy, the Freemasons molested me. And when they molested me, a lot of the other kids that were molested wound up dead. The only reason why I didn't wind up dead is because my uncle was the Speaker of the House. Uh, for the state of Mississippi. I'm Bobby DeLauder's cousin from the movie Ghost in Mississippi, and my father, who is not a redneck and not a racist, uh, married into that family. 
And my father was uh, NASA's top scientist, Joseph W. Smolin III. He was NASA's top scientist. And uh, friends to all the astronauts, he was John McCain's friends. Uh, they went to the Navy together. He was, he was his tutor. So in the 80s, when the crack cocaine hit the street, the Freemasons in New Orleans, along with the mafia and cartel, decided they were going to have their own New World Order, and they were going to push cocaine into every community on the planet. They were going to dismantle every country and upset it. They were going to upset your living room, your family life. They were going to upset everything, cause chaos everywhere, because that's what they are, order out of chaos. But, of course, they have, to, they have the chaos first, and then they come in and try to save you with their Hegelian dialectic or whatever you want to call it. And uh, I've been watching this for over 50 years. I watched them as they murdered my wife and my children in New Orleans in 1993. 1993, three cops go into the house, and they kill my wife and kids. They blame a black man for the murder, Dwayne Parker. Three months later, Hillary Clinton and her husband pushed the Brady Bill through the office using that attack, that attack on my wife and kids. Why would they attack my family? Why would they attack my dad at NASA? Because my dad was the investigator on the space shuttle disaster. He knew that somebody had tampered with the O-rings, and he was trying to find out who. Well, that is, definitely, uh, that is definitely a multi-level conspiracy. Uh, I'm afraid to say, Joseph, the hour uh, does not allow us to thoroughly investigate all these allegations. Uh, they're your allegations not ours, uh, but uh, fascinating nonetheless. Let's go uh, down to Sydney and talk to Michael about Venezuela. Go ahead, Michael. Yeah, hi, George. Hi. Um, I just, I'd like to pick up on what you're saying, you know, about the Bank of England stealing Venezuela's gold. Yeah. Uh, it's actually not that uncommon um, for the US and England and other Western powers to steal countries' gold. I mean, like, you look at Iraq. They invaded Iraq, and they looted all the antiquities, and they stole the gold out of the Reserve Bank. Uh, the same in Libya. And basically, the Western world runs around the world looting and pillaging, and then they have the hide to call looters in, in, um, in America. They yeah. call them looters. Yeah. And, and also, what about the anybody, on, on anybody the talking about looters has never visited the British Museum. Yeah, yeah, and they talk about looters on Wall Street. I mean, they don't talk about looters on Wall Street or looters in London or, or looters, you know, corporate looters. Or, or they talk about, uh, uh, you know, the, the people protesting uh, violence and oppression. And they never talk about the, the looting of the ruling class. No, no, I mean, looting for them is someone uh, putting their boot through the window of Nike and making off with some trainers. As I always say, yeah. Michael, there's, there's small thieves and there's big thieves. Uh, there's uh, yep. small pirates and there's big pirates. Go ahead, Michael. Yeah, no, I totally agree, George. You know, um, you know, I mean, I, I don't agree with looting. Um, you know, no, not me, not me. <laughs> no, no. Um, but, you know, like you know, the whole of capitalism is based on looting. I mean, you know, this, this, the appropriation of workers' surplus value is looting, you know, and like it's, it's legalised looting and no one ever questions that. And the working classes are being looted all over the world. Um, you know, people are living in poverty. Like, you know, Jeff Bezos has got $150 billion estimated to have, you know, $1 trillion by 2034. I mean, where does it stop? When's enough enough? You know, how do these people sleep at night? Fantastic call. What time is it in the morning there, Michael? Uh, it's nearly um, 5 a.m. 
5 a.m. Uh, I take my hat yeah. off to you. Thanks very much indeed, no not just for watching and listening, but calling in. Um, now, I need you to vote on this poll. Is the Labour Party engaged in a purge? Yes, 85%. That's up to and B, no, 15%. You've got an hour left uh, in which to vote on that, and then there'll be a second uh, poll. Uh, so I don't have any more social media. I need to bring me in some more. I see that you're struggling uh, with it uh, already. Thanks uh, for that. So in the second hour, I'll be talking uh, to Dr. Gerald Horn. He's got a new book out, uh, but I love his old book. I'm going to put it there for you to see. It is the book on Paul Robeson, the artist as a revolutionary. It's the best book on Paul Robeson that I have ever read. Now, Paul, as you know, was our very first uh, inductee into the mother of all talk shows, Hall of Fame. I might squeeze in uh, a question or two about Paul Robeson uh, with my guest, Dr. Gerald Horn. He's the author and the Moores Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. Uh, his new book is The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. He's a remarkable man. I interviewed him uh, for my Sputnik show on television uh, last week. Some of you may have seen him, but we'll get a longer uh, 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 opportunity to talk to him uh, in the course of the second hour. And after Dr. Gerald, we'll be talking to Robina Koreshi, an old friend of mine, actually, from Scotland, uh, on the situation in Glasgow, where three people were murdered and three others were stabbed, including a police officer uh, who is, uh, remains critically ill, though stable, in hospital. About the situation, the powder keg, uh, that was deliberately created by government policy amongst refugees and asylum seekers in the city of Glasgow. It's a scandal that has not yet emerged properly uh, on the national scene, but it is going to after I've spoken to the redoubtable Robina uh, in the next hour. Uh, let me do a couple of social media. Fergus says, What's going to happen when we run out of food globally? Do you trust Bill Gates? That's a bit of a non sequitur. Uh, uh, I don't trust Bill Gates to do anything about us running out of food globally, and neither do I think we're going to run out of food globally. Gunther says, what does Galloway know about American politics? Nothing, because he will not acknowledge Wall Street runs the economy. Uh, when did I not? Acknowledge that, Gunther. Sorry, you've lost me. Nigel says, Galloway is blinkered. That caller from New Orleans is just voicing what a lot of people have been looking into for several years now. Oh, yeah, Nigel? Um, our caller from New Orleans uh, said that his father was investigating uh, the crash of the space shuttle and was close to identifying... Uh, someone who had tampered with it. He said that the police had burst into his house and murdered his wife and children, though that was 
the third item on his long list of uh, issues that he raised. I asked him what the Freemasons had to do with it all, uh, and he didn't answer it. Uh, he then dragged in Bill and Hillary Clinton. It seemed to me a compendium of conspiracy theories. If any one of them had been properly enunciated, I would have allowed the call to continue. But when someone comes on and throws uh, the most grave and serious allegations, if true, against living and known people, I have a duty to move the conversation on. Otherwise, we'll be prosecuted. Otherwise, we'll have to pay uh, potentially large sums of money uh, to people uh, defamed and, and, uh, and slandered uh, here on our platform, and I can't do that. So, Nigel, I'm not blinkered. In fact, it's the opposite of being blinkered. It's that I can see clearly uh, when something is worth pursuing as a conversation and when it isn't. And I formed the view that our caller from New Orleans uh, didn't require a conversation with me or with you, uh, but with a different sort of professional altogether. Uh, now, that might be brutal uh, of me, uh, but it's my job to make that kind of judgment call, and I made it, and stand by it. Here's the news with Jamie Lowe. Curious about our curriculum? Have something to say? Then call us now to join the debate on the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. Tune in every Tuesday to Loud and Clear for a regular segment called False Profits, a weekly look at Wall Street and corporate capitalism, where we talk about the big economic issues of the week from the point of view of working people, the poor, and the U.S. position in the global economy. Join us this Tuesday and every Tuesday with financial policy analyst Daniel Sankey right here on Radio Sputnik. It's time to double down with Max and Stacy. Yeah, double down. We're talking markets, finance, business, economics, ka-ching, bling, just about everything money-related on Sputnik. It's called Double Down. We're asking, are dead cats bouncing or have fundamentals changed? That's this week on Double Down. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Sputnik News. Russia has strongly denied reports that it offered the Taliban and its associated militias bounties to kill U.S. troops in Afghanistan, citing U.S. officials, the New York Times, Washington Post and Wall Street Journal reported that a Russian military intelligence unit offered the alleged bounties last year. The Russian embassy in the U.S. said the claims had led to threats to its diplomats. The Taliban also denied doing any deal with Russian intelligence agencies and U.S. President Donald Trump also poured cold water on the reports, saying that it was fake news and tweeted that he never had a briefing about it. 
The report came as the US attempts to negotiate a peace deal to end the 19-year war in Afghanistan. The unnamed official, cited by the New York Times, said US intelligence agencies had concluded months ago that a unit of Russia's GRU military intelligence agency had sought to destabilize its adversaries by covertly offering bounties for successful attacks on coalition forces. More than 10 million people worldwide have been infected with coronavirus, according to latest reports, and more than 500,000 have died. A further 36 people died in the UK after testing positive for COVID-19, latest government figures show. It brings the total number of recorded deaths in all settings to 43,550. However, for the third day running, there were no deaths in Scotland. The US has recorded around 2.5 million cases and at least 125,000 deaths. A rise has been reported in 36 US states, including Florida, which some experts have cautioned could be the next epicentre for infections. China has imposed a strict lockdown near Beijing to curb a fresh outbreak of COVID-19, affecting nearly 500,000 people. It's believed that the outbreak started in a food market. The Rolling Stones have warned Donald Trump that he could face legal action if he continues using their songs at his campaign rallies. A statement from the band's legal team said it was working with performing rights organisation BMI to stop the unauthorised use of their music. The Trump campaign used the song You Can't Always Get What You Want at last week's controversial rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The same song was also used by the Trump campaign during the 2016 US election, the same year that the band tweeted that the Rolling Stones do not endorse Donald Trump. Earlier this month, the family of rock musician Tom Petty issued a cease and desist letter to the Trump campaign over the unauthorised use of his song, I Won't Back Down, at the Tulsa rally. The man shot dead by police during a stabbing attack in Glasgow has been named as Badreddin Abdallah Adam. He was from Sudan. The 28-year-old's identity is based on information the deceased provided to the Home Office earlier this year, Police Scotland said. PC David White was one of the six people injured in the attack at the Park Inn Hotel on Friday. Two hotel staff were stabbed, as were three residents who are asylum seekers. All are in hospital. Police Scotland said it was continuing to investigate the circumstances. Dozens of ethnic minority Labour MPs have been accused of racism by Britain's Home Secretary. Priti Patel hit back at a letter from opposition politicians which claimed that she used her heritage and experiences of racism to gaslight the very real racism faced by black people and communities across the UK. The 32 MPs who signed it told Patel that being a person of colour does not automatically make you an authority on all forms of racism. They urged her to reflect on her words and to consider the impact it had towards black communities in the UK trying to highlight their voices against racism. Patel responded, they clearly take the stance and the position that I just don't conform to their preconceived idea or stereotypical view of what an ethnic minority woman should stand for and represent. That in itself, she said, is racist. Voting has begun in a presidential election in Poland that is seen as a measure of support for the country's right-wing government. President Andrzej Duda, a 48-year-old conservative backed by the ruling law and justice party, is running against 10 other candidates as he aims for a second five-year term. And finally, Jamaica's Governor-General will no longer wear a British royal insignia for personal use that depicts the Archangel St Michael trampling Satan, who is drawn with dark skin. Governor-General Patrick Allen, the British monarchy's representative in Jamaica, said that he is suspending the use of the insignia of the Order of St Michael and St George because of its offensive implications. 
The insignia has the illustration of St Michael and Satan on one of its sides. It shows Satan as a dark-skinned man under the foot of a white archangel and has recently caused anger in Jamaica. In his statement, Allen said the suspension follows his acknowledgement of concerns raised by citizens over the image on the medal and the growing global rejection of the use of objects that normalise continued degradation of people of colour. Allen sent a letter to the Chancellor of the Order of St Michael and St George requesting a revision of the image, recommending that it be changed to reflect an inclusive image of the shared humanity of all peoples. And that's the latest here on Sputnik News. I'm Jamie Lowe. You're listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway. Only on Sputnik Radio. Dr. Gerald Horn is a Renaissance man, a writer and a communicator of the first rank. He is the professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston. And I spoke to him a week or so ago uh, about the Black Lives Matter upsurge and so on. Uh, but I also took the opportunity, as he is a biographer of the great Paul Robeson, uh, to talk to him about the great man. I'm hoping to reprise that this evening if I have him uh, on Skype online. Uh, Dr. Gerald, thank you again for joining me. Uh, the, not that long has elapsed since I last spoke to you, uh, but the situation continues uh, to develop. Uh, and I'd like to, uh, as it were, test a couple of hypotheses uh, on you. Um, the movement, Black Lives Matter, and we know it's not a movement that you pay a subscription to and you get a card and, and all of that, but roughly speaking, the mass movement uh, that erupted uh, in the wake of the lynching of George Floyd, uh, has run out of constructive steam, uh, has pulled down the uh, most offensive of the slaver statues, uh, but the turn to much more controversial and divisive emblems, even though a case could be made, I'm sure, for all of them, uh, to pull down, uh, marks the beginning of the end uh, of the uh, current phase, anyway, of that movement. What do you think of that hypothesis? Well, I think it's premature to say. And with regard to the tearing down of statues, I think that this is taking place in the context of a total rewriting and revisioning of the origins of the United States of America. And I'm happy to say I've been part of that process. That is to say that many are now looking with a jaundiced eye at the claims made in 1776 by slave owners that somehow they were in the vanguard of humanity. Recall it was your countryman, Samuel Johnson, who said at the time that he found it curious that those who were drivers of Negroes were always yelping about liberty and freedom. And I think that what has happened in the United States is that those who consider themselves to be U.S. patriots have oversold the history of the United States. They put forward a kind of immaculate conception of the formation of the United States, a creation myth. And at the same time, when you look at other revolutionary processes, they take a very one-sided view. 
That is to say, they don't have anything positive to say about the Cuban revolutionary process. They hardly have anything positive to say about the French revolutionary process. And so I think as a result, that has helped to generate this backlash, understandably, against the so-called revolutionary process that created the United States of America. Fair point, and I agree with every word of it. But what would be the message sent by pulling down the statue of Abraham Lincoln? Uh, who, who bathed uh, the United States in blood in a civil war uh, to defeat the Confederacy and free the slaves. Well, I'm afraid to say that rethinking the sainted image of Abraham Lincoln is also part of this process of revisioning United States history. Uh, keep in mind, as I have written and other historians have written, that during the course of the U.S. Civil War, Mr. Lincoln was negotiating with Brazil to ship all of the U.S. Negroes to Brazil after emancipation. In fact, that had been the dominant line of certain members of the U.S. elite, emancipation, then deportation. Then if you look at the statue in question in Washington, D.C., it has a very paternalistic, condescending image of a black man at the feet of Mr. Lincoln, and uh, that is an image that many people find to be distasteful and odious. Uh, so you'd pull that one down, would you? I'd put it in a museum with proper context. Yeah, you see, I'm looking at it now. It is a very condescending look from Lincoln. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you could say that the black man is getting off his knees uh, in that statue, that he has been on his knees uh, because he was a slave, and that thanks to Lincoln, he's now getting up. I'm just glancing at it now. You know it better than me. Uh, but that's one reading of it, isn't it? Possibly, but that's not the reading of those activists in Washington, D.C. who find it offensive. And in any case, if you look at the so-called Emancipation Proclamation of January 1st, 1863, it was a war-fighting measure. It did not freeze slaves where Lincoln had power, such as in Maryland, right across the line from the District of Columbia. It only freed, quote-unquote, the enslaved in jurisdictions where he had no power, such as Texas. That is to say, he was trying to encourage the black men, in particular, to leave the plantations and join the United States Army so they could defeat the Confederacy. So once again, I think that the United States elite has overplayed its hand. On the one hand, it has denigrated every revolutionary process on planet Earth since 1776. On the other hand, it's tried to maintain this pristine and pure image of what's going on in the United States. And that's like trying to ride two horses going in different directions at the same time. It just won't wash. And now they'd have to reap the whirlwind. Well, uh, there's no doubt uh, that the whole concept of American exceptionalism uh, is, uh, is, is the original sin in your country, in my view, uh, because, of course, no sooner had, for whatever reason, uh, Lincoln and Grant uh, defeated the Confederacy, they turned their armies uh, to go west and to complete the annihilation and expropriation of the Native Americans whose land it was in the first place. You are absolutely correct. And even under the government of Mr. Lincoln, you had one of the largest mass executions in the history of this bloody country. I'm speaking of what happened in the early 1860s 
when the indigenous leaders in what is now Minnesota were executed in mass because they were objecting to their land being taken. And it's oftentimes said that slavery is the original sin of the United States of America. I think that's a gross overstatement. The original sin was the invasion of North America, the seizing of Native American land, the liquidation of the Native American population, and then bringing enslaved Africans across the Atlantic. Until we reach that basic fundamental understanding, there will be no peace in this country. How does a country with two such original sins so livid uh, on, their, uh, on their record, uh, come to regard itself as the, the policeman, the judge, uh, the leader of the world? Well, that is the $64 question, is it not? I mean, it's like the thief yelling, stop thief. But I'm afraid to say that some of our friends in the international community have been a bit too credulous in their acceptance of these creation myths about the founding of the United States, about slave owners supposedly leading a fight for freedom and justice. Uh, that is not only taught in the United States of America, I'm afraid to say it's a line that's taught all over the world. And I think our international friends really should know better. Indeed, uh, I had uh, myself a cause to visit the United States Senate uh, in 2005. It became quite a celebrity celebrated occasion. Uh, and there I was confronted by a people who quite clearly regarded themselves as princes, not senators, but princes. And it struck me then that for all this revolutionary and republican talk, uh, the ruling elite in the United States really does regard itself as rather royal. I think you are correct. I think it was the Irish patriot of the 19th century, Daniel O'Connell, who said that in 1776, when the rule of London was overthrown in North America, or at least in the United States, or what became the United States, that what happened was the replacement of a certain kind of aristocracy of lineage with an aristocracy of race. And I'll leave it to you to determine if that was a step forward for humanity. Certainly, that's the line that's been taught to generations in this country. But for those on the receiving end of this poison dart, this was no leap forward for humanity. This was a great leap backwards. Well, we're definitely not going to take you back, uh, Professor. So uh, I discourage any uh, hopes uh, in that regard. Uh, you've uh, made your bed, your rulers have. Uh, and you must lie in it. Uh, so how does it look now? Is Trump successfully weaponizing uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and the statues and so on uh, into his preferred narrative of law and order? And if so, how do you think that's going to break in November? Well, it's too soon to tell. Keep in mind that you really can't take these polls seriously. I remember in November 2016, looking at the New York Times website, and up until about 15 minutes before the polls closed, they had Hillary Rodham Clinton winning the election. And then you refresh the page at 9 p.m. Eastern, and Donald Trump was declared victorious. So now the polls are telling us that Mr. Biden is ahead by double digits, but you have to keep in mind that many people are embarrassed and chagrined about admitting their support for Mr. Trump. 
Secondly, I think that even our friends on the left of the United States really underestimate the depth of retrograde opinion and attitude amongst the bulk, I'm afraid to say, of the Euro-American working class and middle class. And then, as your comments suggested, Mr. Trump is fundamentally turning the tables on the movement by portraying himself as the defender of law and order. And many are willing to overlook his defense of Confederate heroes and Confederate statues in that regard. Now, uh, the Russia gate is back. Uh, the uh, last three weeks or four weeks of uh, lashing China as the eternal and global evil uh, has uh, been put to one side uh, for a little bit at least. And the liberal media today uh, has discovered that the Taliban uh, were really quite nice sorts. And all they were waiting for was the Russians to come along and give them some rubles, at which point they began trying to shoot American soldiers. Now, unless you've never heard of uh, the last centuries of Afghan resistance to foreign occupation from Alexander the Great to uh, Donald Trump the not-so-great, uh, you would know that the Afghans resist all foreign occupations, and always, and that the only people who ever paid Islamist fanatics in Afghanistan to kill occupiers were the United States government themselves in the 1980s, who gave them a king's ransom in money and materiel. Will this be another successful attack on Trump, or do you think People have grown tired of unattributable uh, briefings from uh, unnamed intelligence officers. Well, I would say it's too soon to say, but basically what you've exposed is the fact that the Democratic Party, when it comes to foreign policy, in some ways is no better, in many ways are worse than the Republicans. What I mean is, is that it is the harebrained idea of the elite of the Democratic Party to confront Moscow and Beijing simultaneously. The difference with Trump is that they're willing to make nice with the European Union. I don't think that that's a winning foreign policy. In fact, I think it's a disastrous foreign policy. And I'm happy to, to hear that you brought up the 1980s because you rarely hear in this country any reflection on the fact that it was the United States government in the 1980s which helped to pump arms, stinger missiles and all the rest to these religious zealots in order to weaken the former Soviet Union. They came to power and by 2001 attacked the World Trade Center in New York and the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., Virginia, and apparently were trying to attack the White House as well with the plane that crashed in Pennsylvania. So once again, I think that the Democrats are barking up the wrong tree. Recall that Susan Rice, the national security advisor under President Obama, after the George Floyd protests erupted post May 25, 2020, suggested that it was actually the hand of Moscow that was behind the George Floyd protest, which is the looniest idea since Looney Tunes and should have discredited her for all time, but you still see her making an appearance regularly on television. Would Susan Rice or Kamala Harris uh, be a step forward for black people in the United States if they became uh, the vice presidential pick? 
Well, I don't think so. And it's interesting that you mentioned Kamala Harris. Uh, of course, she's not only of South Asian ancestry, she's of Jamaican ancestry. Of course, under these peculiar and unique rules in the United States, that means she's defined as a black woman. But I do think that if she is selected as vice president, it'll have more to do with the other half of her ancestry. That is to say, the United States is very much concerned about recruiting India into the anti-China bloc. And I dare say that if Biden is elected in November with Kamala Harris on the ticket, she will be heading to New Delhi by January. Very interesting. Now, I haven't read your new book, uh, but I have read your old book. Uh, and it is, and I've read a lot uh, of Paul Robeson. It is the book on Paul Robeson. He was the first person inducted into the Hall of Fame of this show. Paul Robeson is number one in the Hall of Fame of the mother of all talk shows. Did we get that right? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, if there were any justice in this country, Washington, D.C. might be renamed Robeson City uh, because he was the tallest tree in our forest. Uh, he was an excellent athlete, an excellent singer, an excellent uh, football player, excellent actor and a dynamic and dynamite political activist who was pro-socialist all the way, and is that latter factor that led to his being sidelined, to his being, quote, blacklisted, unquote, in the United States in the 1950s, and with him dying ignominiously, according to the U.S. elite, in 1976 in a modest home in Philadelphia. Now, how did that happen, Professor? Uh, this man was once... Uh, this glittering world historic figure. And yet I bet that not many people in the United States or in Britain have ever heard of him. Sadly enough, it shows you the power of the propaganda machinery in the United States of America in particular. Uh, once again, they can make people all over the world, not least in this country, think a slaveholder's revolt was a great leap forward for liberty and freedom. And I think that that same propaganda machinery has besmirched the excellent reputation of one Paul Robeson, who really needs to be rehabilitated. And I think that that process is taking place. I understand that there is a movie now being made about his life, at least I hope so. And certainly we need to teach the younger generation about his sterling existence and his sterling career. Dr. Gerald Horn, best of luck with your new book and a pleasure, an honor to interview you tonight on the mother of all talk shows. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Let me take a very brief break. Radio Sputnik. Every Tuesday to Loud and Clear for a regular segment called False Profits, a weekly look at Wall Street and corporate capitalism, where we talk about the big economic issues of the week from the point of view of working people, the poor, and the U.S. position in the global economy. Join us this Tuesday and every Tuesday with financial policy analyst Daniel Sankey right here on Radio Sputnik. Want to talk? Get in touch with us at radio at sputniknews.com. We are talking 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You are listening. We give you the most essential out of the endless information space. Radio Sputnik. 
Telling the Untold. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We give you the most essential information out there. Radio Sputnik. Telling the Untold. George Galloway and the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees. Vote now on my Twitter page. Is the Labour Party engaged in a purge? A, yes, B, no. You've got uh, half an hour or so uh, to do so. Now, this is where I turn history teacher and look back at the events over the momentous seven days that shaped our world for good or ill. This was the day in 1914 that the First World War was set in train when Franz Ferdinand, Archduke of Austria, and his wife Sophie were assassinated in Sarajevo by young Serb nationalist Gavrilo Princip at 10.45 a.m. Five years later to the day, in the Hall of Mirrors, an apt setting, in the Palace of Versailles in France, the treaty was signed ending the war when Germany was forced to concede on all points. The League of Nations was established, but the US Congress neither ratified the Treaty of Versailles nor joined the League of Nations. In 2004, having invaded Iraq and held power for 15 months, the United States handed power back to the Iraqi people at a low-key ceremony in Baghdad. Low-key, uh, you might say, it deservedly was. U.S. Administrator Paul Bremer, remember him, transferred sovereignty to an Iraqi judge at a handover brought forward two days in an attempt to prevent the occasion being marked by bloodshed. I wonder what happened. Bremer f flew out of the country shortly thereafter. On the 29th of June, 1966, the U.S. began the inexorable escalation and ultimately futile pursuit of victory in the American war on Vietnam when U.S. planes bombed the North Vietnamese capital, Hanoi, and the port city of Haiphong for the first time. In 1974, Maria Estela Isabel Martinez de Perón, a former cabaret dancer, was sworn in as an interim leader of the Argentine Republic. She was Argentina's first female president and at 43 became the youngest Latin American head of state. Isabel Perón's presidency lasted until 1976, so two years, when she was deposed by a military junta led by Jorge Rafael Videla. Don't cry for me, Argentina, followed some years later. On the 30th of June, 1905, the battleship Potemkin arrived at Odessa, where sailors took the bodies of dead crewmen ashore. The crew had mutinied, and sailors joined the civilians in revolutionary actions of the 1905 revolution, which was, of course, the precursor of the successful one in 1917. On July 1st in 1963, Kim Philby was revealed as the third man in the so-called Cambridge spy ring. The others were British diplomats Guy Burgess 
and Donald McLean, who had also been recruited uh, by the Soviet Union. I'm reading a wonderful book at the moment on George Blake, uh, who was another KGB agent, uh, well ensconced in British intelligence, uh, who turns out to have been a much more significant agent uh, for the Soviet Union than I had thought at the time. Uh, he was rescued from Wormwood Scrubs by a rope ladder thrown over the wall. I'm not making this up. Uh, and he escaped uh, in, uh, in a camper van all the way back to Moscow, where he is still alive to this day, George Blake. I'd tell you if I'd met him, but then I'd have to kill you. On the same day in 1967, the Beatles album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, went to number one in the United States and stayed there for 15 weeks. Younger viewers and listeners won't know what any of that means. An album, number one, in the charts. Do charts still exist? And in 1997, Hong Kong was handed back to the Chinese authorities, ending more than 150 years of British control. The British flag was lowered over government house home to the last governor, Chris Patton, known as Fat Pang at midnight. Well known as Fat Pang, an admirable name for him. In January, uh, sorry, in July 2nd, 1964, the Civil Rights Bill, one of the most important pieces of legislation in American history, became law. The United States President, Lyndon B. Johnson, signed the bill creating equal rights in voting, education, public accommodation, union membership, and in federally assisted programs, regardless of race, color, religion, or national origin. It may actually be implemented one day. I watched uh, with my eldest son this week, Mississippi Burning, uh, with the incomparable Gene Hackman. I had a lot of difficulty finding it. Uh, for some reason, both Sky and Netflix have taken it off uh, their roster of movies. And once I'd re-watched it in my case, and he'd watched it for the first time, and in the current conditions that exist in the United States, I well understood uh, why they had withdrawn it. If you ever want to feel boiling with anger and rage, then watch Mississippi Burning and watch Gene Hackman in the barber shop. In 2005, the world's biggest music stars performed at the Live Aid concerts around the globe, aimed at persuading political leaders to tackle poverty in Africa. That might happen one day too. Uh, concerts in 10 cities, including London, Philadelphia, Paris, Berlin, Johannesburg, Rome, and Moscow, played to hundreds of thousands of people. A TV audience of several hundred million watched the gigs ahead of the G8 Summit of Leaders on Global Poverty and Climate Change. On July 3rd in 1928, John Logie Baird, a Scotsman, demonstrated the first colour television transmission in London. And in the same city in 1966, at least 31 people were arrested after their protest against the American war on Vietnam turned violent. Police moved in after scuffles broke out at the demonstration by more than 4,000 people outside the U.S. Embassy in Grosvenor Square. 
and in 1971, the Doors singer Jim Morrison was found dead in a bath in an apartment in Paris. He had died of a heart attack, aged just 27. Morrison is buried at Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris, where his grave has become a shrine for successive generations of fans. And I, myself, have visited it. Edith Piaf is buried very close by, as are the graves of the Paris communards uh, who were executed against the wall of the cemetery. And in 1988, the American naval warship Vincennes, patrolling the Persian Gulf, shot down an Iranian passenger jet after apparently mistaking it for an F-14 fighter. As you do, all those on board the airline are almost 300 people were killed. Iran has never accepted that it was an accident. And July the 4th was, of course, the day in 1776 that the US Congress proclaimed the Declaration of Independence from Britain. Had the Founding Fathers foreseen who the 45th President was to become, they might have had second thoughts. Just another seven days in our glorious, often inglorious history. That was the week. That was. Is the Labour Party engaged in a purge? A, yes, 86%. No, 14%. Down one. You can vote until... Uh, you've got another 10 minutes, I think, to vote. Let's go at the first caller. Uh, Tim in Glasgow. Tim, welcome. Hello, George. Thanks very much. I actually live in Redden. But, um, you've, you've, you've still got the accent. That's what counts. Yeah, definitely. You so. can take definitely. a man out of Glasgow, but not Glasgow That's out right. of the man. <laughs> definitely there, George. Definitely. I'd just like you mention about the incident at the Parkin Hotel yesterday and the terribly inaccurate uh, reporting by BBC and Sky. I mean, it was absolutely shocking. At one point, the BBC reported three people dead, including the um, assailant. And it just turned out to be nothing like it, did it? Well, I myself uh, have fallen victim to it, uh, Tim. Uh, and you might, well, uh, you might well say I should know better. Uh, but no, no. I believed the BBC and Sky that three people yeah. had died, and I said so not half an hour ago. Uh, but it turns out the only dead person... Uh, was the madman with the big knife. That's correct. But also, I mean, it was causing the right wing to jump in as usual with both feet, with their, um, you know, rabble-rousing. Mr Farage, for one, blaming illegal immigrants. What you've got to remember about these guys in these hotels in Glasgow, they get £35 a week Social Security, right? And that's taken away from them in this hotel. So they have to live to the hotel food, the hotel menu. Okay, right, they're not starving, them, but they've got no independence in there whatsoever. <clears throat> and it's not easy living with no money at all, you know, in a foreign country. You're and absolutely right, and I'm people. going to be talking to a woman who knows uh, Robina Koreshi uh, in just about uh, 20 minutes, maybe, uh, Tim, on that yeah. very subject. Uh, sure. But the fact that these people were all cooped up in that hotel... Uh, which exactly. was a coronavirus uh, accident waiting to happen, a mental, a mental health crisis was... waiting to happen, uh, when they were given an hour to get out of the flats that they were in and yeah. living independently in, in order to be shunted into these hotels for the profit exactly. uh, of a private company. Exactly, yes. And also they had uh, 
torment of the right wing marching down the street last week after the, the George Square demonstration, the protecting the statues, marching down there singing Go Britannia, and you get out of Glasgow and all that. I mean, it's it's really, you know, as a Glaswegian myself, but coming from the light side, I'd like to say, it's absolutely intolerable, you know. And for, Amazing. you know, for them, this sensational, well, that sensational report in the first, just, just really added to it. Well, I, I don't even know when that was withdrawn because I was blissfully unaware uh, that actually yeah. uh, none of the people stabbed uh, by this yeah. individual had actually died. Uh, exactly. I, was, uh, I was absolutely sure there were three dead uh, because I never saw that news withdrawn. No, uh, there it is I there now know. on the screen, look. Three dead in stabbing instant oh, in yes. Glasgow. That's absolutely disgraceful. I mean, they're supposed to be the BBC and Sky, you know, yeah. the premier yeah. broadcasters. Yeah. And they're, you know, they're, they're reporting that. It's an absolute disgrace, George. Tim, thanks for the call. Uh, Glenn is in Carlisle. Go ahead, Glenn. Hi, George. Uh, pleasure to speak to you again. Thanks, you, for, uh, thanks for having us on. Welcome. Um, I uh, wanted to talk to you a couple of things I want. Andre uh, wanted to talk to you about how we have the <coughs> time to cover both. The first is um, similar to what Tim was actually also talking about, the issue of um, the British media and indeed the, the media across um, the Western world and the way in which that uh, relates to uh, democracy. Um, and uh, I'm of the firm belief, I have been for some time now, uh, that uh, because of the way our media is... Uh, controlled because of the way it is a mouthpiece for uh, the governments we're under, the neoliberal capitalist governments we've been under for decade after decade after decade, um, that in essence, as a result of that, we don't really live in what could technically or really in any tangible way be construed as a democracy. Because well, I don't, it's, certainly not uh, free. it's certainly not free because uh, a country which has a lie machine as its fourth estate uh, is clearly not able to properly function as a democracy because it is a democracy based on a false pretenses. Mm. No, no, exactly, and that, uh, that's what I was um, just getting to. If, if people are uh, being told what to think and if people are constantly a victim or constantly have their, their judgment there, view of reality, their perception of everything that's going on, uh, distorted and misted by, as you aptly put it, this lie machine. Look how it worked in the, in the, the uh, December election, Glenn. Mm -hmm. uh, all the uh, news machine which marched uh, the people into the uh, column of Boris Johnson have now decided that Boris Johnson is the worst thing that's ever happened to this country. Yeah. All these commentators on the BBC, on Sky, in The Guardian, uh, in The Times, uh, in The Independent, uh, all these papers that have turned against Boris Johnson are the very people who destroyed Jeremy Corbyn and yeah. thus made the Boris Johnson government uh, unavoidable, ineluctable. Yeah. No, you're right. It, and the, the two uh, the nature has been completely two-faced and them just spinning whatever they can, whatever they want to, on a whim, 
to satisfy their needs, satisfy their interests, which often uh, uh, are shared with the interests of the powerful, shared with the interests of the housing government, and their interests overlap considerably. But they will spin whatever suits their interests, suits their desires, and this is a benefit to them, and that's what they've always done. And I'd like to say, it's not a democracy when people are told what to think, as they were in Hitler's Germany, as they were in Hirohito's Japan, and we're told what to think well, in this uh, Luckily, there are lacunae, like this one, uh, where we try to break out of the prevailing orthodoxy. Glenn, thanks uh, very much for that call. In 40 seconds, it's Robina Koreshi on the stabbings in Glasgow. Don't miss that. Radio Sputnik. Tune in every Wednesday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker and John Kiriakou for a regular segment called Beyond Nuclear, where Brian and John discuss nuclear issues, including weapons, energy, waste, and the future of nuclear technology in the United States with Kevin Camps, the radioactive waste watchdog at the organization Beyond Nuclear. Listen on Wednesdays right here on Radio Sputnik. Want to talk? Get in touch with us at radio at sputniknews.com. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at sputniknews.com. Tune in every Thursday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker for the regular segment called Veterans for Peace, where we focus on the contemporary issues of war and peace that affect veterans, their families, the country, and the world as a whole. Veterans for Peace President Jerry Condon joins the show every Thursday. Hear about this and more every Thursday right here on Radio Sputnik. We are above all the latest developments, and we don't take any sides. Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. The mother of all talk shows. With George Galloway, the world is our classroom, and you're welcome to sit in and join the seminar. Now the poll's about to close. Is the Labour Party engaged in a purge? A, yes, 86%. B, no, 14%. You can still vote on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. Lubna says on Twitter... Is it safe to conclude that both the Tory and the Labour Party aren't serving UK citizens? I'd say so, Lubna. Wild Rain says, Keir tackling what he deems anti-Semitism is his top priority. RLB retweeted an article containing a fact. I despair for freedom of speech regarding Israel. Despair for Palestinians. God help the remaining Labour Party members who speak out on the issue silenced the plan all along. The only thing wrong with that wild rain is that Rebecca Long-Bailey supported the purge of other people, guilty of stating only facts. The most high profile of whom was Ken Livingston, uh, but there were many others. Uh, Jackie Walker uh, for one, uh, Mark Wadsworth uh, for another, and perhaps most celebrated was the last of the uh, Corbyn-supporting MPs, Chris Williamson. He, too, was stating a fact, and he was purged. And Rebecca Long-Bailey supported the purging of him and all of the preceding. And now she's been purged. You see, as I tried to tell people all along, 
Uh, you can't feed the crocodile and think that it's not going eventually to eat you. You can't defang a tiger claw by claw. It doesn't work. You'll end up in its belly too. Now, uh, Robina Qureshi is a redoubtable uh, campaigner for refugees, for asylum seekers, for the BAME uh, community. Uh, she's a human rights campaigner. Uh, but most importantly in this story is the director of positive action in housing. Uh, and she was the foremost advocate against the policy of suddenly moving all of Glasgow's asylum seekers out of the flats that they were living in, flats that no one else wanted to live in, and putting them all in hotels like the Park Hotel in Glasgow, which turned into a bloodbath uh, over the last uh, 48 hours or so. To hear more about how that happened and what exactly happened, we've managed to get Robina Qureshi on the show, and I'm very glad uh, that she could join us. Robina, thank you uh, for that. Uh, have I got that right? Uh, that the people that are now living in these hotels were once upon a time all living independent lives whilst awaiting the adjudication uh, of their cases, uh, but were bundled out of those uh, independent flats and put into these hotels. It, that was a coronavirus waiting to happen, but it was also a mental health crisis waiting to happen, wasn't it? Yes, George. Um, there were 370 asylum seekers who were living in serviced accommodation, new to the country, but living perhaps for a few months in serviced accommodation. That was their homes where they could cook, they could keep their environment clean, they had some control and privacy over their own lives. And all of a sudden, um, in March, towards the end of March, in the, at the start of the lockdown, when the streets were empty, um, when hotels were emptied because they were a coronavirus risk, um, people were um, uprooted by the Mears Group at the end of March, beginning of April, um, given half an hour's notice and taken four or five to a van and dumped in hotels all over uh, Glasgow, basically creating a public health disaster as well, waiting to happen by having hotel clusters or, or potential outbreaks of virus all over Glasgow. Glasgow. Um, you have to remember the context, and the context is uh, a lockdown, a pandemic, and people um, basically, um, the, the city had made a makeshift hospital at the SECC, which you'll be aware of, for a thousand uh, new patients from coronavirus, and has built a mortuary at Hillington to prepare for uh, hundreds of dead as well. That was a context within which the asylum seekers were uprooted from all different countries, Afghanistan, Syria, um, uh, Cameroon, uh, Yemen, lots of different countries, and they were basically uprooted without any um, assistance whatsoever and left on their own to languish. They had the £5.39 pence a day that they received as an allowance from the, the Home Office, removed by the Mears Group. 
and um, the, uh, they, they were unable to spend and are unable to spend any money whatsoever on things like mobile phone top-ups. They were unable to buy um, bottles of water or some fruit when it was Ramadan. Um, people were talking about starving. Um, the calls that we were getting was from people saying that they had suicidal thoughts, they were desperate to get out and they are still desperate to get out. And they're saying that, um, please, we need food. We just need food. We need food. And we need um, mobile phone top-ups because we can't buy mobile phone top-ups. We can't access lawyers. We can't, the Wi-Fi is so poor, we can't call our families back home at all. We need access to these things. Um, so that £5 was the difference between being just about surviving and what we're seeing just now, which is a complete mental health crisis. You have to remember six weeks ago, a suicidal Syrian refugee whose family we now represent died in the Maclay's Hotel in Glasgow and he had been dumped there by mirrors before he had been living in serviced accommodation in a house. It was a home to him. He could cook his own food. He had privacy. He was able to clean his own environment. In the hotels, there's no social distancing. The lifts are crowded and um, the dining areas also were crowded and there was no proper cleaning of public areas as well. So that's the, that's the, um, the, the context yeah. of what we're talking about. Tell here us uh, who, who or what are the Mears group? The Mears Group, if you look up Corporate Watch, actually will tell you exactly who Mears Group is. It's a multi-billion outsourcing service company that has major contracts with the UK government. And they took on a billion pound contract for asylum housing in Scotland, but also in England as well. So they've got a major contract. But this is now under Mears Watch. Two people have now died. Six have been injured, including a police officer. This is just in the last six weeks, so God knows what's going to happen next. Um, because you're talking about people who are already fled uh, war and persecution, possibly were tortured, possibly um, faced um, torture on their journey of seeking asylum to get to uh, Europe or to the UK. Um, that's what we're talking about, George. So uh, they obviously had government permission to turn all these people out of the flats they were living in and congregate them all in a hotel. Uh, which government? The Scottish government or the Westminster government? It was the UK government that decided, uh, the Home Office decided um, that Mears was to, and other asylum landlords, but particularly Mears, who took over from Serco, was to um, uh, take people out of serviced accommodation and move them into hotels. You have to remember there's no market for hotel accommodation so therefore these hotels were lying empty and basically um, were cheap alternatives to leaving people in their own homes um, which is what happened and now two people have died, both of whom had complained about mental health issues. Um, the Syrian gentleman was um, had said that he had suicidal thoughts, that he had attempted to kill himself. The Home Office was aware that he'd been in hospital having attempted suicide just a few days before he killed himself. So his statement five days before was that um, he'd attempted to kill himself. His mother uh, was seriously ill in Syria. He needed to send money back and the family in Syria could not understand why he in the West was unable to send money back. They don't have an understanding that people are being left absolutely destitute and homeless um, in the UK. They can't comprehend it. In fact, at that stage, even his family in Syria had food 
and he didn't have access to just just peace of mind, being able to clean, being able to have access to water, being able to access have access to food and have access to the right to work. None of these things are open or are open to the refugees now. Now, uh, what happened uh, at the uh, hotel in question? Uh, what can you tell us uh, about the state of mind of the, of the would-be attempted murderer? Um, where our understanding is, is that he had been pleading for help because of his mental health. He had said that he could take no more, that he was exhausted. Our understanding is, is that he was pleading to be returned to Sudan because he could take no more in the hotel because they, the food they were feeding them was monotonous day in, day out. It was given out in set times. He was talking about being very hungry and he was saying that if he had to get out, he'd been left 20 days on his own in isolation in the hotel with a brick wall for a view is what we've been told. And that was because he was suspected of having COVID-19 symptoms and by the end of it or in the middle of it or whatever um, he was saying that he could take no more and he, he wanted to hit somebody and 11 o'clock the night before our understanding is is that other asylum seekers have told us that they went downstairs to the reception and said that this man has severe mental health problems he needs help somebody needs to speak to them speak to him and they didn't um, I, uh, that was 11 o'clock the night before. I understand the next day that his lawyer spoke to him and then a few minutes later uh, the attack took place and one police officer and six people were injured, including unaccompanied asylum-seeking children. Um, you have to remember the people in there are very vulnerable. They do have mental health problems. They are vulnerable people. And Mears is not dealing with... Uh, it's a big company, a multinational company. It's not dealing with um, asylum... Uh, Amazon parcels, you're dealing with human beings who are vulnerable and therefore you have to deal with them in a sensitive manner, not uproot them en masse out of their homes and dump them in hotels and tell them to stay there 24-7 in their rooms. Their rooms are not cleaned every day. They, they had no access to water. That was another thing that people were saying. The other thing is, is that they, were, they had a problem with breathing. The, the, the problem was that the windows don't open, and especially with coronavirus, um, the whole issue of dirty air conditioning, which can transmit viruses. People were terrified of breathing. And um, being in a room 24-7, being told you're only allowed to go out for half an hour for a walk and then have to either get that same food at these set hours and then return to your room, be on your own, no contact with charities or faith groups or lawyers or anything because there's a lockdown going on. And what you have is a situation which is uh, basically a, a tinderbox waiting just to be lit um, and very, very vulnerable people. So to be honest, I wasn't surprised when I heard what had happened. And um, we knew that people were, the, the, the numbers of people saying that they were depressed or at risk of suicide or, or had suicidal thoughts had rocketed in their reports to us because we help people not just with their housing and um, not just with their casework, their pre-legal casework. We also help them with crisis grants. And when Mears had stopped the crisis grants, uh, the, the, when Mears had stopped their £5.39 a day, we were giving out thousands of pounds in crisis grants to asylum seekers. And the biggest priority group for us was the hotel asylum seekers, which is why they say they were effectively being, it was effectively hotel detention. It wasn't a hotel in the way that you or I might understand it. Well, it was a disaster waiting to happen and a disaster duly uh, took place. Uh, what should happen next and what do you think will happen next? Um, we want to know... Um, about the decision making, about who decided and why they decided to take people and uproot vulnerable people out of their homes 
into hotels. We want to know why, um, we want to have a complete investigation, an independent inquiry into what happened here regards Adnan Elbi, the Syrian refugee who died, the suicidal Syrian refugee, and an investigation to what happened here. Why were people uprooted during a pandemic? It is so cynical, actually, the statements that they gave. They say they're deeply saddened. They, kept, they said that the last time as well, six weeks ago. What's going to happen next? Who's going to die next? Um, under their watch, two, two refugees have died. It's never happened before. They said we won't lock people out the way Serco and Rupert Solmes did. Well, no, they didn't lock people out the way Serco and Rupert Solmes did. They did much worse. They caused a, 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 a danger to public health and they uprooted vulnerable people from their homes into hotels, creating further potential outbreaks. And this, this man, who is the alleged attacker, uh, apparently was actually isolating from for suspected uh, COVID-19 symptoms. And uh, Mears Group has said that, um, that, uh, that they, they took the money away so that people wouldn't catch a virus from the coins. Well, there was no government guidance that said stop using cash, you know. And yet there was government guidance saying stay in your homes, do not move, don't do any house moves, don't buy or sell houses, don't do any moves, landlords can't evict you. And they uprooted, effectively evicted 370 people in the city of Glasgow, creating a major health disaster waiting to happen, even as we speak. Because now we know on the record that the, the anecdotal evidence tells us that that man, the, the alleged attacker, was isolating due to COVID-19 symptoms. But Mears has said that, that there was nobody isolating and that they had made sure there was nobody able to isolate. Such is the cynicism that they are treated with at this moment, that Mears and the Home Office is treated with, that a group of Scottish MPs refused to meet them on Friday, saying that they could not meet with Mears because of trust issues. This is before the attack took place on Friday. Wow. What a story. Robina Qureshi, uh, thank you indeed. Nice to see you again after uh, so long and uh, that you're still fighting comes as yeah. no surprise. Yeah. Uh, to and give my regards uh, to your wife and your beautiful children as well. Thank you, Robina. Thank you. Another one along in a minute. Uh, Robina Qureshi, human rights campaigner and director of Positive Action in uh, Housing. Let's get the news with Jamie Lowe. Curious about our curriculum? Have something to say? Then call us now to join the debate on the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. Tune in every Tuesday to Loud and Clear for a regular segment called False Profits, a weekly look at Wall Street and corporate capitalism, where we talk about the big economic issues of the week from the point of view of working people, the poor, and the U.S. position in the global economy. Join us this Tuesday and every Tuesday with financial policy analyst Daniel Sankey right here on Radio Sputnik. It's time to double down with Max and Stacy. Yeah, double down. We're talking markets, finance, business, economics, ka-ching, bling, just about everything money-related on Sputnik. It's called Double Down. We're asking, are dead cats bouncing or have fundamentals changed? That's this week on Double Down. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com.
Radio Sputnik News. Russia has strongly denied reports that it offered the Taliban and its associated militias bounties to kill U.S. troops in Afghanistan. Citing U.S. officials, the New York Times, Washington Post and Wall Street Journal reported that a Russian military intelligence unit offered the alleged bounties last year. The Russian embassy in the U.S. said the claims had led to threats to its diplomats. The Taliban also denied doing any deal with Russian intelligence agencies and U.S. President Donald Trump also poured cold water on the reports, saying that it was fake news and tweeted that he never had a briefing about it. The reports came as the U.S. attempts to negotiate a peace deal to end the 19-year war in Afghanistan. The unnamed officials cited by the New York Times said U.S. intelligence agencies had concluded months ago that a unit of Russia's GRU military intelligence agency had sought to destabilize its adversaries by covertly offering bounties for successful attacks on coalition forces. More than 10 million people worldwide have been infected with coronavirus, according to latest reports, and more than 500,000 have died. A further 36 people died in the UK after testing positive for COVID-19, latest government figures show. It brings the total number of recorded deaths in all settings to 43,550. However, for the third day running, there were no deaths in Scotland. The US has recorded around 2.5 million cases and at least 125,000 deaths. A rise has been reported in 36 US states, including Florida, which some experts have cautioned could be the next epicentre for infections. China has imposed a strict lockdown near Beijing to curb a fresh outbreak of COVID-19 affecting nearly 500,000 people. It's believed that the outbreak started in a food market. The Rolling Stones have warned Donald Trump that he could face legal action if he continues using their songs at his campaign rallies. A statement from the band's legal team said it was working with performing rights organisation BMI to stop the unauthorised use of their music. The Trump campaign used the song You Can't Always Get What You Want at last week's controversial rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The same song was also used by the Trump campaign during the 2016 US election, the same year that the band tweeted that the Rolling Stones do not endorse Donald Trump. Earlier this month, the family of rock musician Tom Petty issued a cease and desist letter to the Trump campaign over the unauthorised use of his song, I Won't Back Down, at the Tulsa rally. The man shot dead by police during a stabbing attack in Glasgow has been named as Badreddin Abdallah Adam. He was from Sudan. The 28-year-old's identity is based on information the deceased provided to the Home Office earlier this year, Police Scotland said. PC David White was one of the six people injured in the attack at the Park Inn Hotel on Friday. Two hotel staff were stabbed, as were three residents who are asylum seekers. All are in hospital. Police Scotland said it was continuing to investigate the circumstances. Dozens of ethnic minority Labour MPs have been accused of racism by Britain's Home Secretary. Priti Patel hit back at a letter from opposition politicians which claimed that she used her heritage and experiences of racism to gaslight the very real racism faced by black people and communities across the UK. The 32 MPs who signed it told Patel that being a person of colour does not automatically make you an authority on all forms of racism. They urged her to reflect on her words and to consider the impact it had towards black communities in the UK trying to highlight their voices against racism. Patel responded, they clearly take the stance and the position that I just don't conform to their preconceived idea or stereotypical view of what an ethnic minority woman should stand for and represent. That in itself, she said, is racist. Voting has begun in a presidential election in Poland that is seen as a measure of support for the country's right-wing government. President Andrzej Duda, a 48-year-old conservative backed by the ruling law and justice party, is running against 10 other candidates as he aims for a second five-year term. 
And finally, Jamaica's Governor General will no longer wear a British royal insignia for personal use that depicts the Archangel St. Michael trampling Satan, who is drawn with dark skin. Governor General Patrick Allen, the British monarchy's representative in Jamaica, said that he is suspending the use of the insignia of the Order of St. Michael and St. George because of its offensive implications. The insignia has the illustration of St. Michael and Satan on one of its sides. It shows Satan as a dark-skinned man under the foot of a white archangel and has recently caused anger in Jamaica. In his statement, Allen said the suspension follows his acknowledgement of concerns raised by citizens over the image on the medal and the growing global rejection of the use of objects that normalise continued degradation of people of colour. Allen sent a letter to the Chancellor of the Order of St. Michael and St. George requesting a revision of the image, recommending that it be changed to reflect an inclusive image of the shared humanity of all peoples. And that's the latest here on Sputnik News. I'm Jamie Lowe. You're listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway. Only on Sputnik Radio. Okay, here's poll number two. Would Trump supporters peacefully accept defeat at the polls? A, yes. B, no. <laughs> I know where my money is. Uh, social comments, Twitter, Lubna. Uh, I've done that one. Uh, Justin, your poll's results suggest that 15% of your listeners are trolls. <laughs> and uh, another user says, great show as per. I'm just smirking at the collar from New Orleans. See no evil monkey. And Time Bandit says, people are sad. They are getting angry at statues and medals. My goodness, kids are still starving in the world and they want to break things. Tad says, personally, I couldn't care less about statues, but then I'm not hypersensitive. They're often a good reminder of how things were and should not be in the future. And Pia says Keir Starmer is not the whole Labour Party front bench for the moment. Maybe he moved against RLB to divert attention from the movement in the Labour Party and in society at large in support of Palestinians and against Israel's annexation of Palestinian lands that they have been occupying for 60 years. Please don't follow the rest of the media in this diversionary tactic when discussing Palestinian rights. Eh? Uh, Leon says, brilliant from Professor Gerald Horn. What a guy. That statue is odious. You're in a hole, so stop digging, George. That's my job, my friend. Keep digging. Uh, Joanne says, after the slaves were freed, they were made economic slaves and their battle is ongoing. And Nikki says, why are we looking backwards? And on YouTube, Johan says, Horn placed it correct. The statue should be in a museum with proper context. It is part of history untold. And Tomp says, great history lesson from the professor and George. And Syndicat says, the West always preaching to everyone about the rule of law all the while violating and ignoring it at every possible opportunity. The West has gone completely rogue. Yes, we're the rules-based order, lads. And uh, on Twitter, Georgie says, the Labour Party is a toxic brand unfit for purpose. 
got to start driving home, but I'll listen all the way. And in response to the poll, Lolly says, the last 40 years have been a purge. Kinnock in the 1980s, purging militant. It seems history is repeating itself again. Now, uh, Dr. Ranjit Bra is the Moats medic, and he joins me now at this uh, decisive, uh, maybe turning point, uh, and maybe not in a good way, Doctor. Uh, we are about to uh, see all kinds of things reopen uh, tomorrow. Uh, the roads are very much busier, as I can testify uh, this evening. Uh, the congregations of people are, are simply anonymous. Uh, I mean, they're, they're uh, mind-boggling. Uh, some of the scenes from the beaches, from the parks and so on. It's hard to believe this is not all trouble uh, that's uh, going to come right down the pipe at us. George, thanks again for having me back with you. Uh, I, I concur with those statements, George. Um, uh, we've seen in the world there have been 10.2 million cases and uh, confirmed by testing and half a million deaths. In the UK, uh, we've had 311 uh, thousand confirmed cases by testing. And as we've said before, perhaps 7% of the population only have been affected. And we know that's 43,500 confirmed deaths across all settings, according to official statistics. But by excess mortality, well in excess of 65,000, though we don't have precise figures. Day by day, sometimes we see quite low figures for the number of infections. But looking week on week, really, it's remaining very static, George. Uh, Hans Klug, uh, the European director of the World Health Organization has uh, warned this week uh, of increasing outbreaks across many countries and settings, including Sweden, Spain, Germany, as we discussed last week, which had an increase in its R rate uh, up to 2.8. And that was just associated with a few local outbreaks. Um, what we're still not doing well in this country is testing and tracing. And as a result of that, really, we're seeing a static number of of, of deaths currently. Uh, and as you say, a, a lifting of the lockdown implies that in, after a, the, the, the usual observed lag of two to three weeks, we're very likely to see significantly increased numbers again. But all, you know, if you just look at this week, we've had close to 1,000 deaths, and that's likely to go up because, they, as we know, they, they um, are registered late and the numbers are always revised upwards. So really, we're not seeing decreasing numbers. And if you look at the, the, um, the rate of infection, it's around static in most areas of the country. So it's a problem at the moment that simply isn't going away, George. Now, uh, you and I said from the beginning uh, that uh, there was absolutely no certainty that this uh, virus even originated in China. Uh, and moreover, and I said it many times, uh, that there was more than one kind of coronavirus in circulation. Even in the United States, the virus on the West Coast was very different from the virus on the East Coast. Uh, and now we discover, having earlier discovered that in Italy there were cases last year, we now discover that at the beginning of last year, in water which has just been tested in Barcelona, we discover the coronavirus. Uh, so it could very well be that though the 1920 variant wasn't a Spanish flu, but has entered history as a Spanish flu, that this one, which is now uh, entered history as a Chinese flu, 
might actually have come from Spain. It, it, there are several candidates for where the virus has come from, George. Yeah, you're quite right. In fact, in, in October or November last year, uh, there have been cases of people in France who came down with a very similar, uh, at that point, undiagnosable respiratory uh, infection. Uh, wasn't able to be diagnosed. Uh, the gentleman in question was a gentleman of Moroccan origin in Paris. He survived um, that that infection, and but but samples of his. Um, uh, uh, aspirate were, were kept and subsequently tested once that uh, test for COVID-19 uh, existed and shown that he in fact did have COVID. So there, there are several documented cases in France, in Spain, uh, and probably in the United States, though that, that data is unclear, of patients who have had COVID-19 uh, that predated the outbreak, which was thought to be initially the origin in Wuhan. And, and that's not widely appreciated, but there were people at the time, there were Chinese scientists at the time who made it quite clear in the face of what was quite provocative and hostile propaganda from the United States in particular, that they said, and to quote their words, although this virus was discovered here, it doesn't mean it originated here. And that's kind of logically unassailable. Uh, and it was even the Chinese foreign ministry, after insisting that, you know, they were doing their best to combat it, and international solidarity was the order of the day that we needed to learn from each other's examples, share technology, and share information to help us combat it, that assigning blame was not helpful. That's clearly been the name of the game for Britain and the United States in particular, uh, but that's part of their broader global strategy, and has nothing whatsoever to do with this viral outbreak. Quite so, uh, but that would mean that the, the search for patient zero uh, in China uh, is barking up the wrong tree uh, because uh, this may have passed from the animal kingdom to humans all over the world uh, and much longer ago than the end of last year. Uh, the timeline's still not clear. I think uh, that the Chinese themselves, there, there were persistent calls again from, uh, particularly from Trump and from the United States administration uh, prior to the last uh, Congress of the World Health Organization that there should be some kind of international investigation. Uh, they mentioned at that time that they were looking for reparations from China in the order of a trillion believe it or not, a trillion dollars. And they, Trump even mentioned in several interviews the possibility of cancelling China's uh, 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 stake in America's national debt, which runs to $1.2 trillion. So uh, failing that, they talked about punitive sanctions and other trade, escalating the trade war. So uh, China undercut that entire narrative by actually calling itself, uh, and, and, and Xi Jinping called for an international investigation, but insisted that it must be an impartial, objective investigation led by the science, led by the scientists, and not directed as the United States is very fond of having investigations that it directs. With, uh, and then the science, of course, has to follow its preconceived ideas and conclusions in order to meet its political ends. And I think that would serve certainly no one's interest other than a very small elite of very wealthy people, business people within uh, the US establishment. It's certainly not in the interests of workers in Britain or elsewhere. Dr. Ranjit, thank you very much indeed, as always, for joining us on the mother of all talk shows, our very own Moats Medic, Dr. Ranjit Bra. Would Trump supporters peacefully accept defeat at the polls? A, yes, 38%. B, no, 62%.
Very interesting. You've got till uh, 10 o'clock uh, to vote on my Twitter feed on that poll. Uh, Chris in Guildford is on the line on the coronavirus. Go ahead, Chris. Hi, good evening, Mr. George Galloway. How are you doing, this? How are you doing today? By the grace of God, I'm fighting fit. Thank you. <laughs> That's good. Are you still staying alert? Um, <laughs> you see how alert I am? Okay, okay. Yeah, well, anyway, what I was saying, I've been looking at all these riots, Black Lives Matter, over here in the UK and in the US of A. Now, all of a sudden, I don't know if I'm catching things right or if I'm seeing things right, but the beaches were piled during the week for the lovely weather we had, and all of a sudden, I'm not hearing no infection rates or nothing's going up. Nobody's not dying. I'm wondering if this thing is a hoax all of a sudden. Or... Well, uh, the... the uh... I don't know what you would call it, the, uh, the lag between uh, catching the virus and presenting with it is two to three weeks. Uh, so we'll need to look at that. Uh, in, uh, in a week uh, or so, we should start to see if these huge gatherings of people, block parties, uh, riots, demonstrations, and jamborees to the beach have made any impact on uh, Britain's uh, figures of people presenting with the illness. My money is on that it will. What's yours on? Uh, my money is on people getting infected again and we're back into lockdown again. That's where my money is. Yeah, we'll not have any money left, uh, Chris, uh, at this rate. Thanks very much for your call, my friend. Mike is in the Bahamas. like to hear from him. Go ahead, Mike. Hi, how are you? Good. Nice to get a call from the Bahamas. I just got a question. Now, here in the Bahamas, we have not had a new case of COVID-19 since June 14th. And I'm just wondering how we seem to get it under control and that the UK and the US can't. Well, you're a very, with respect to the Bahamas, uh, you're a very small population, aren't you? Yes, but we have shipping coming in and it must be coming in because we'd starve. We don't grow anything. Are you still getting uh, cruise ships? Cruise ships are banned. We still get uh, flights. Okay. People coming in on holiday? Uh, not so much. That's restricted. You have to self-quarantine for two weeks. That's what I was so my I next question. I don't think you would get. That was my next question. So people go to the Bahamas uh, for holidays or to count their money, don't they? Well, okay. You get this thing that it's a billionaire's playground, but most of it isn't. And the infrastructure here is, is not that great. So, what's, so your theory? I, what's your theory, Mike? I just don't see that the UK and the US are really trying. You think I don't see why they can't get a handle on it. If, if, they, uh, if a small country like us would, I mean, you think of the Bahamas as a billionaire's playground, but it's actually a rather poor country. Ah, for the, uh, the mass of the people, I have no doubt uh, about that. Mike, thanks for the call. I've got to go to Sacramento, a lovely, lovely place. I spoke there once. Uh, John is on the line there. Go ahead, John. Uh, yes, uh, George. I'm just calling about, uh, first of all, a long-time listener. Just love the show. Thanks. Um, I'm calling about uh, the security theater. I'm, I'm not a gun person. I'm a really progressive person. And me and my brother did a Euro trip over there in Europe from London to uh, Barcelona and France and Germany. And I, we'd never seen an AR-15 in our life. And we've been all through California. I'm an attorney here in Sacramento, and I've, I'm also licensed in D.C. 
we've never seen an AR-15 in our life. So, I mean, while we have a lot of security theater here, we don't really experience the same situation you guys experience over there. And my my uh, question was just whether you think uh, it's as big of a problem there as, as I think it is, because, you know, being someone that's never seen an AR-15, it makes me uncomfortable when I see guns. So I don't well, know if you think uh, it's a big problem. Of course, uh, in Britain, uh, the police don't carry guns, uh, not even uh, pistols. Uh, it's only specialized armed response officers who have them in their car uh, or people uh, at the uh, most airports vulnerable places like airports. airports. Yeah, like yeah, airports. airports and but train the, stations. the police in the, in the streets don't uh, carry weapons. How long that will last, I'm not sure. Uh, but yeah. in, in Europe, it is absolutely routine. Uh, the all police officers have Do you think they should, you think they should tone it down? Well, I don't know. If I was a police officer and I knew there were a lot of terrorists and serious criminals out there that did have weapons, I don't think I'd let them take my weapon away. Yeah, I guess so. Maybe maybe that's just me. Yeah. I mean, they do keep them in their cop cars, and you see them if you glance in there. But, uh, you know, we try to keep it low with the guns. And that's the thing. That's the irony, because... We told, we all talk about guns, 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 but we don't really like our police carrying big, big guns, you know, big phallic guns. It yeah, just, it's, uh, it makes well, us there uncomfortable. There are so many guns in the United States. It would be impossible to imagine the U.S. police not to be armed. <coughs> oh, they do, yeah, but we don't see it. That's the thing, and that's the irony because... You know, I've never seen a gun, and we talk about guns, but if you're a progressive individual, I wasn't even allowed to have a toy gun. That's how progressive my family was. So that's why I get on edge when I see them, and that's why when we went to airports and train stations, it's just, it's just like, wow, you guys are okay with this? You know. Well, of that's course, we have had a, a terrorism problem much greater than the United States, which has had that's probably true. some uh, spectacular uh, events. Uh, of course, 9-11 being the, the worst of them. Uh, but uh, on the European mainland and in Britain, uh, we have had really 20 years now uh, of, uh, of serious terrorist violence. Yeah. All right, George. Well, that's, that's all I had. Great Pleasure. show. I'm uh, so happy to talk to you from Sacramento, a lovely, lovely place. I have very fond memories of it. Let's go to North Carolina and talk to Mark. Mark, welcome. Hey, how you doing there, George? Good, Mark. George, nice uh, to hear from you. Know, you. Go I was ahead. Yeah, I was thinking, George, in the beginning, you were talking about um, Russia and all that and this new scam that they're trying to push on us about yes. Russia. Um, you know, I this, this this animosity against Russia, is, you know, it's actually borders and racism. I won't say it's racism because, you know, I, Russia being Russian is not a race, but it's some kind of ism. Because, um, but it really goes back, I think, hundreds of years. Because you could even see, for instance, like World War II, when like Patton would say, uh, these, not only these commies, but he also calls these Mongols, you know? This is what it really goes back, back to, because, you know, the Anglo Saxons, I'm not just talking about England, I'm talking about the United States, you know, basically the, um, the ruling class, a lot of the ruling class in the United States and Britain. And even to a degree in other countries like Germany, Western Europe, um, they really have a hostility towards Russia. Um, 
based on, I think, on uh, on that, that threat from the East, you know? Yeah. And it is so disgusting. Well, the, you know, Mark, me, that was um, understandable when the Soviet Union was an existential challenge to Western capitalism uh, and so on. It's much more difficult to understand now uh, that Russia is a, a capitalist country, uh, more or less operating the same kind of economy as exists in uh, Western European and North American countries. Uh, it's hard to get a handle on that. It does, but again, going back into history, if you look at even, even in our Civil War um, in the United States, when Britain threatened to enter on the side of the South, it's the Russians who told them, back down, back off. You had the Crimean War back then, I'm not sure exactly what year, but, I mean, it, there's been a lot of hostility even well before they became communists. Yeah, that's a good point. That, 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 that's a good point. Britain, of course, yeah. invaded Russia. Uh, Winston Churchill was responsible for the invasion. Uh, we invaded Russia with hundreds of thousands of British soldiers in the Civil War uh, after the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, we occupied a part of Russia. Yeah. Uh, Nobody talks about that now, and, uh, and yet that's the actual background. No. You know, Russia never invaded us. In fact, it helped us uh, avoid a defeat in the Second World War, which would have meant the end of us. Yeah, it sure would have. I, I don't think we would have won World War II without the Russians, I'll be honest with you. And if you look at... Um uh, what you were saying about the invasion, yeah, the Americans invaded it too, and they got their, and their butts kicked. And that's just exactly what happened in a land war with Russia today. They would overpower NATO in about two days because they are defending their homeland, and they've got an excellent army. Uh, the only problem, the only thing is, I would hate to see a bloodbath like that. First of all, I don't want to see anybody killed. I don't want to see war. The other thing, it probably wouldn't stay conventional. Once that started happening, the nukes would start flying, and that's the end of mankind, probably, as we know it. Exactly so. Anybody would survive. Exactly so. That's the call of the night, Mark. Oh. Thanks very much for making it. David is in Bulgaria. We're getting around tonight. Go ahead, David. Uh, good evening, George. Nice um, to hear yeah, from you. Go ahead. Yeah, I want to speak about racism and what people actually um, imagine is a racist and the word racism. The reason being... Um, I'm English. I live in Bulgaria due to basically financial. It's so cheap to live here. Um, I've also got a house in Uganda. So I've uh, got Ugandan black friends. Um, now there's two, two points behind this word racism. I became incensed today when I was on Facebook and one of my friends on Facebook from Uganda uh, posted a program from the British TV, I don't know which one because I don't receive British channels here, but um, it was a journalist called Afur Hirsch yeah. uh, with, with a Nick Ferrari. Yeah. Now, I don't know when this was recorded. Quite recently, yeah. Yeah, she was um, talking about she having um, all the statues removed, and she was saying that she was British and he had said to her, if you don't like living here, go back. And she kept calling herself British and she'd been here all her life. Yet when you look at it on Wikipedia, she was born in Norway. 
So she holds a British passport. And this is one thing that the UK government... Well, you could be really born in Norway and you could have come to Britain at, at you know, one week old. Yes. Uh, oh, and, have, and therefore someone, some, someone uh, telling you to, if you don't like it here, go back. Now, that is a racist comment. It, it is, I agree. But also, if you look at the continents around the world, people from Africa don't have an African passport. They have their own nationality. When we play football, we have an English football team. There's no such thing as a British football team. And it really annoys me that I have a British passport when I'm English. So you, you're in favour of uh, uh, an English breakaway? No. Um, England was part of Great Britain, part of the United Kingdom. You look at France, it's part of Europe, but they have a French passport. It's not a European passport. Well, it's both. Brazil, does, Brazil doesn't have a South American passport, it has a Brazilian passport. My wife is Ugandan, black Ugandan. She has a Ugandan passport. Why can't we have our own national passport when we have it for sports events? Mm. Well, uh, you know, we, we, of course, uh, at the Olympic Games, have a British team. Uh, yeah, but not in football. We have England, Scotland, Wales, yeah. even in rugby. But the Olympic Games, we have a British team, Team GB. Yeah, I know. And when uh, a Scottish person gets a medal, the English people say, we got it. <laughs> Don't I know it. Thank you very much, David. Fascinating call uh, from a man who lives in Bulgaria and in Uganda. All kinds of people watching and listening to the mother of all talk shows. 60 second break, I promise. Radio Sputnik. Every Tuesday to Loud and Clear for a regular segment called False Profits, a weekly look at Wall Street and corporate capitalism, where we talk about the big economic issues of the week from the point of view of working people, the poor, and the U.S. position in the global economy. Join us this Tuesday and every Tuesday with financial policy analyst Daniel Sankey right here on Radio Sputnik. Want to talk? Get in touch with us at radio at sputniknews.com. We are talking 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You are listening. We give you the most essential out of the endless information space. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. Radio Sputnik, we speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We give you the most essential information out there. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. George Galloway and the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees. Would Trump supporters peacefully accept defeat at the polls? A, yes. 37% down one, B, no, 63% up one. You can vote until the end of the show on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. Uh, official George Galloway, blue tick. Uh, in response to the poll, Stephen says, I just can't see Biden beating him in the first place. Once they have the live debates, Trump will destroy him. Biden can barely finish a sentence these days. But Stephen, what if there aren't any live debates? 
What if Biden says, because of the coronavirus, I ain't doing any live debates? Mark says, Trump is already lining up excuses if he does lose. I have no doubt his supporters will take to the streets, probably armed. And Brett says, what will the Dems do if Trump wins? Not recognize the election outcome? They are psychologically unable to lose to Trump a second time. Very good point, Brett. And uh, Ewan says, thanks, George. Dr. Horn was one of the best guests ever. I wish he'd taught me history in school. Uh, yes, indeed, uh, a fantastic guest. Vincent is in High Wycombe in England. Let me talk to him next. Go ahead, Vincent. Hi, George. Hi. Uh, how are you doing? Good, yeah. Good show. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing well. Thanks. Um, I'll talk about the China uh, coronavirus uh, cases. Yeah, go on. Uh, China has 1.4 billion people, mm -hmm. and they've only re reported a little over 3,000 deaths. Yeah. And the uh, UK has 67 million. Yeah. And only, uh, according to Dr. Randy Brewer, it's about 65,000 deaths. Yeah, 65,000 so, excess deaths in 2020, yeah. Yes, yeah, so do you really believe the Chinese numbers? I do. When there's 1.4 billion... I do. It's the British numbers I don't believe. It's the British <laughs> government... It's the British government that have been lying about the numbers all along. If not for the Financial Times, you would not know that 65,000 number. Yeah, but how can they lock down 1.4 billion in China? Well, the Chinese response to the coronavirus uh, simply doesn't compare with our response. They used the uh, character, special character of their society uh, for good or ill. You may like it. I suspect you don't. Uh, or you, <laughs> might, you might not like it. Uh, but they used the fact that they are able to marshal, mobilize massive resources and take from the center uh, very severe measures to completely lock down entire cities, for, forbid anyone to leave them, anyone to enter them. They disinfected the streets every day. They tracked and traced. Uh, they tested. Uh, they used the strengths of their society to destroy the coronavirus. They still have cases uh, that uh, every now and then erupt. Some of them, most of them are from people coming in, Chinese people coming back to China, but some of them are, as it were, uh, coming from inside China itself. Uh, but by and large, China, uh, Vietnam, South Korea, Singapore, New Zealand, uh, these countries, which, as you'll have gathered, are both racially and ideologically diverse, have been success stories. Britain and America have been a catastrophe. Yeah, um, I know uh, Dr. Deborah Black, who works uh, for the United States government. You have to say that again. I didn't catch that, Vincent. Dr. Deborah Burke. No, I don't know her. No, tell me about her. She said even when there was a clear other cause of death, they still put it down as COVID. Uh, you're one of these deniers, Vincent, are you? No, she said it in the press conference. I've never heard of her, so I don't know. I'm, not, I'm asking you.
Are you are you a denier? Um, I don't know what you mean by denier. Are you a COVID nineteen denier? Um, I'm not sure. Well, um, uh, what's your point that that the coronavirus is not nearly as bad as we're being told it is? Um, I think we should be skeptical, skeptical of government figures. Yeah, well, um, we're in the right place to be skeptical. Yeah. In Britain, yeah. anybody that believes what the British government tells them, uh, I've got a bridge yeah. here in London, I can sell them. <laughs> Thanks, Vincent. Let's go to Brighton. Henry is there on Keir Starmer. Go ahead, Henry. Oh, hello, George. Hi. Um, yeah, great to, great to be on the show. I really didn't expect a callback, to be honest. Thank so, you. Um, a little bit. Um, yeah, on Keir Starmer and the Rebecca Long Bailey um, affair, debacle, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, I must admit, I've not done my research. I haven't watched or, or looked at the interview that Maxine Peake herself did. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> but what I uh, gleaned from what I've seen is that uh, the whole sort of crux of it was around the uh, Israeli uh, forces teaching the American forces the neck on, uh, the knee on neck technique, which, uh, you know, I can see, you know, it doesn't, it, that would seem like a bit of a, 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 a big leap in in in, uh, in truth. Well, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. Actually, but, 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 uh, I, but, I would not but, have but, I would not have put that in the article if I had written it. Uh, no, but, um, but, but, but the, how, how but, does how does that, I want to know, George? Is is how on earth does that um, stand up as anti-Semitic? Well, that, that is the point. It absolutely does not. Uh, and um, and, these... and how could how could uh, um, uh, you know the uh, and I've, this is a, on a wider point. I believe that Keir Starmer is well. Let's not get too paranoid, but he's not far off uh, a, 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 like a Tory plant um, trying to. I mean, he, you know, uh, I really like the call. I think it was uh, I can't remember was it Greg earlier or from Belfast. The first call earlier, yeah, uh, saying and I don't know much about Irish politics, but talking about the power vacuums, and it seems that that's what this world is thriving on at the moment. And this country, we, we, we're going towards a complete power vacuum where, the, 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 you know, we, there's no viable... Well, you know, um, it's not over yet. Uh, it's not over yet, Henry. Uh, the point no. is, the, 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 the factual matters are, are these. Uh, the American police forces do go to Israel for training. Uh, that uh -huh. is an indisputable fact. Not an opinion. Yeah. Uh, the Israeli security forces are exceedingly brutal uh, towards the Palestinian people uh, whom they are charged with occupying and, and repressing. That is an indisputable fact. Uh, Israeli police and security forces have choked people uh, with the knee on their neck. Now, it would not be, I'm sure, accurate to say the American police learned the knee on the neck while they were training in Israel, uh, that would seem fanciful. Not least because I don't think American police need any lessons from anyone on brutality. I really don't. I think they knew about brutality long, long before they started going to night classes in Tel Aviv. Uh, so the facts are clear. But the point you make is the important one. A criticism of the Israeli police, a criticism of the Israeli government, 
of the Israeli army, of the state of Israel itself, is not anti-Semitic. How can it possibly be? There are millions of Jewish people in the world, some of them religious, some of them secular, who are completely opposed to Israel as a political state. And, 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 and as far as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Zionism is an ideal, not a, a race or a religion. Of course. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an ideology. Uh, you know, so, if you are, if you are opposed... And, and this is, if you were opposed to communism in the Soviet yeah. Union, uh, that didn't mean yeah. you hated Russians. Uh, no, in fact, absolutely. you could argue it meant you loved Russians. You wanted to free yeah. them from communism. Yeah. So how, yeah. come, how come being opposed to Zionism means you hate Jewish people exactly. and not the exactly. opposite? Henry, thanks exactly. for the call. Jacob is in Nottingham. Go ahead, Jacob. All right, George, big fan. Thanks, um, mate. I'm just wondering whether you think the best way to deal with institutionalized racism will be to burn down the central banks which impose those systems. Well, I'm against burning down central banks. I'm in favor of taking them over in the interests of the people. What, nationalizing them? Yes. I agree with that, but I don't think it's possible the way that it's set up. So the best way to deal with it is to burn them down and start from scratch. No, we can't have arson advocated on the show, Jacob. Uh, I'm sorry, I'll have to say goodnight to you. Tom, uh, Tom is in Cumbria. Uh, let's go to Tom. Hi, George. Um, just on this, um, the annexation of the Jordan Valley in, in the West Bank. Yes. Um, it, it looks like it's, they're certainly making moves to, uh, to do it now because yes. um, I've read They've in the... They've got a green light monitor. from Washington, Tom. Excuse me? They've got a green light from Washington. Um, I, I'm not sure about that, but on the ground, uh, Middle East Monitor has said that they are uh, closing roads now, um, going from um, the towns that are in the west side of the West Bank into Jordan Valley. Uh, so they are restricting movement now into the Jordan Valley of the Palestinians. Yeah. Um, and obviously this is a huge concern. It's a massive breach of international law. Um, and uh, it's part of an ongoing cleansing of Area C, which is that whole uh, area around the Hebron Hills, which is in the south of the West I Bank, no going all the way up. Yeah, go on, Tom. You were talking about uh, Area C. Yeah, Area C. So um, it's an ongoing cleansing of Area C yeah. um, from around the Hebron Hills, going all the way up to uh, the, the Jordan Valley. So my main concern now comes down to demographics. In other words, how many Jewish people are going to be in this area compared to the Palestinians? Because if they do um, take sovereignty over that area, so it's part of Israel, then what's going to happen to those Palestinians? Because we know, in Jerusalem particularly, they want the Palestinians out and they want a majority of Jewish people there. Uh, so this is obviously going to raise questions in the mind of people that are paying attention of how are they going to be shifted out? Because they have been shifted out in many ways. And will this be literally brutally people being um, ethnically cleansed from the area? I doubt that, but you can rule it out. Uh, of course, uh, Israel began that way. 800,000 Palestinians were driven 
out of their homes, their land, and never have returned. And that 800,000 has now become many, many millions, uh, many of them living as refugees in neighboring countries, some of them as displaced people inside their own country, and millions scattered around the globe from, uh, from north, south, east, and west. Uh, so it has happened before. I doubt if that will happen uh, because it probably won't be necessary for it to happen because there are other ways of achieving it. And you alluded to some of them. If you make life sufficiently miserable and desperate uh, for people, uh, then you can, uh, without having to murder them, uh, you can uh, move them along. And that is, of course, the $64,000 question. If you take the population of Israel and the population of Palestinians living in the, inside the Green Line, in Gaza, in the West Bank, uh, the numbers are virtually exactly the same. So Israel is currently ruling uh, approximately 14 million people, only half of whom are Israeli. Uh, only half of them are Jewish. Uh, the other half are not. Uh, the other half are Christian or Muslim. And yet Israel insists that it is not just a Jewish state, but the Jewish state. And that is a problem. As long as the Palestinians maintain population parity uh, with, our, uh, with a vote uh, inside the Green Line or without a vote, just under occupation and siege, uh, that's going to be an ongoing problem. It requires a, a, an apartheid solution uh, because you cannot possibly give uh, people who are as numerous as you uh, their full civil rights, their human rights, their right to vote, their right to uh, go to court, and so on. You can't do that uh, and maintain your uh, ethno-supremacist uh, concept of your state as a Jewish state, the Jewish state. So it requires, at some point, somehow, either by a stroke of a pen on a map, uh, or by some means to get people out of your borders. And that is therefore pregnant with tremendous dangers. And the world can see that. Uh, the world knows, Tom, that this is a very serious step that Mr. Netanyahu is going to take uh, this coming week. And it's not just a breach of international law, egregious as that is. It is a reckless endangerment uh, of what passes for equilibrium, and if not peace, then the absence of war in the region. Thanks for the call. Bruce is in Derby. Go ahead, Bruce. So the world can see that. Uh, Bruce, Bruce, you're on the you're on the air. Hi, George. Welcome to the show. Yes, welcome. Hi, uh, welcome. Uh, well, hey, yeah, yeah, my hero. I spoke to you on episode forty-eight, and okay. I was talking to you about um, you know the furlough program and what's happening to uh, um, you know temporary workers. Yes. But uh, what I was ringing up tonight to talk to you about was um, you, you led the show with um, asking about um, is there a Persian Labour Party? Yeah. And I think there is. 
I think there is. But I think that's that's not a bad thing because now the socialists in the Labour Party can realise that we don't need two Tory parties and they can all come to us, can't they? Well, it's a, uh, he's making the Labour Party a, a Tory Plan B, uh, and uh, it's working. Uh, the, uh, the newspapers uh, have uh, fallen in love with Keir Starmer. Uh, the, uh, the broadcasters have fallen in love with him. Laura Kunzberg yeah, okay. is, looks to me literally to be in love with him. Uh, and so uh, the conclusion you can reach is that if push came to shove, uh, the British establishment would not mind getting rid of Boris Johnson and replacing him with uh, Sir Keir Starmer. Because, as they said on the death of Calvin Coolidge, as Dorothy Parker said on the death of Calvin Coolidge, how could they tell? How could you tell the difference between a Conservative and a Labour government uh, of the type that uh, Keir Starmer clearly uh, would introduce? Bruce, thanks for the call. I've got to press on. Nikki is in Paris. Go ahead, Nikki. Hi, George. Hi. Uh, I'm calling. First of all, uh, great show. Um, I watch it every Sunday. I love it. Thank you. Uh, and uh, I'm just calling about um, uh, the press, the freedom of the press, and the DSMA system. Uh, I've been looking at that recently because I'm a supporter of Julian Assange. Yeah. And uh, since we've all been wondering about the media blackout and the media lies, I contacted the DSMA people, um, for people who don't know what DSMA is, it's the Defence and Security Media Advisory yeah. we Notice. We, we refer to it here as a D notice. Yeah, so it's also known as a yeah, D notice. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, I, I contacted them to get information about the notices they've issued in respect of anything published by Julian or um, WikiLeaks, and they wouldn't tell me, even though it's supposed to be a voluntary system. Mm. Uh, and then I discovered you're, you're going to have a good laugh because you said they're more like Austin Powers and uh, Mr. Bean. Mm. Um, you're going to have a good laugh. I found all that information on Wikipedia. <laughs> so for, for your viewers who want to see what sort of notices have been issued, they could go to Wikipedia uh, DSMA, and they will see a list uh, from 2000 and uh, between 2004 and 2005, uh, after the Iraq war, the first one that I came across there on Wikipedia uh, says that three blanket letters were sent to newspapers advising against publication of countermeasures used against roadside ambushes of British forces in the Iraq war. So it's, it's been quite consistent since 2004. Um, then there was another one in 2009, another one in 2010, uh, specifically about the website WikiLeaks. Uh, and then another one in 2013 about the U.S. Prism, Sur Prism Surveillance Program. Uh, another one in 2013 uh, over NSA and GCHQ leaks. So they've been concentrating quite heavily another one in 2017 uh, they've been quite active with yeah. DSM notices well, they have, involving they have, uh, <laughs> they have uh, Nikki my first response would be I would have been happy if the British media had imposed a blackout on the Julian Assange case because that would have meant uh, that we would have been spared uh, the yes. ocean of filth 
and disinformation uh, about Julian Assange that we've been treated yeah. to uh, in the British media. I, I don't believe that there is a D-notice on the Julian Assange case, uh, and uh, here's why. Uh, you'll be familiar, perhaps, with the old adage, but not everyone will. Thank God you cannot bribe or twist the average British journalist. But when you see what unbribed he'll do, you realize there's no reason to. There's no reason for a D-notice uh, to get the British media to behave like Pavlov's dogs. Uh, they do that because they are. Uh, the scorpion stings because it's a scorpion. And the British journalist, with only a very, very few honorable exceptions, is quite happy to be a hireling, quite happy to be told uh, to micturate on Julian Assange uh, or on any one uh, of uh, 100 targets from uh, Tony Benn through Arthur Scargill through Ken Livingston through me uh, through uh, many many others and Julian being the most serious uh, seriously affected they're quite happy to do it it's in their nature mm. to do it so mm -hmm. there's no need as I say uh, to look for a conspiracy here uh, because uh, a conspiracy is unnecessary. Uh, I, I wasn't looking for a conspiracy. No, I know. That, uh, but they, 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 they have they issued them. Yeah, uh, they, they have. They've been issued. So they I have. Mean, sure, yeah. and they are a pernicious thing. But by and large, they're not necessary. Because they, our, they our, be media, necessary. our media mm. is controlled by uh, the very lowest of people. I agree. I, I mean, agree. We just, you've seen the case this week of Richard Desmond, uh, the owner of a pornography empire, and the Daily Express, and the Sunday Express, and the Daily Star, until very recently. Uh, he's mm. in a lot of trouble now on a corruption uh, case, an allegation of corruption involving a government minister. That's the kind of person uh, that owned and controlled uh, an important part uh, of the British journalistic architecture. Uh, Rupert Murdoch, don't get me started uh, on mm. him. Uh, we mm. can go through them all. Uh, they are, they are uh, reptiles, and so they behave like that. I agree, uh, but what is to be done? Ah. <laughs> that's, that's the question. Well, uh, something one thing, has to be done. One thing that we can do, and you and I have just done, is expose it talk about it. Uh, and we have done that, uh, I think, in uh, uh, a powerful way. Thanks very much indeed, Nikki, uh, for that call. I've only got a couple of minutes left. Uh, concerned father says, does it matter? The social breakdown in the US is going to happen regardless. Which senile old man takes office? The President of the United States doesn't run the country. The broken system does. And Scott says, I voted yes. I think it's unlikely, but if it doesn't happen, then you'll have a serious problem, a revolution or reactionary change in the USA. And on Twitter, uh, Laura says, darling, gorgeous George, well, formerly, uh, whatever makes you think Trump the buffoon is going to lose to the prevented sleepy, I think she meant perverted sleepy Uncle Joe. Uh, I'm not saying he will, uh, but on current polling, of course, he is going to. I've got time for one last call. Richard 
in Manchester. Go ahead, Richard. Uh, good evening, George. Thank you very much for taking my call. I'll be as Welcome. quick as possible because you've had a great show on tonight. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I want to talk about um, Keir Starmer just for, just for just one second. I don't think, in my opinion, he has a hope in hell of ever becoming the Prime Minister. But because of the people at the back of him, they will push the, the, uh, his narrative of whatever he does in the mainstream media because of their hate for Boris Johnson. And I'm sure that that is well established now. I'm sure millions of people in the country realize what is happening. But I don't think he will ever become a Harold Wilson. I don't think he'll ever become uh, a, a prime minister in this country to equal anything that we've ever had. I think he's too wooden. Uh, yeah, that, I'm not. Yeah, I mean, ordinarily I'd agree with that, Richard. But uh, Boris Johnson is really quite unpopular now, uh, and even in his own party, and even amongst many conservative voters. So I wouldn't rule out the possibility uh, that uh, Keir Starmer will be uh, facilitated in winning an election. But my point would be, what difference would that make? Uh, you'd have a somewhat interesting, jovial Burke uh, replaced by a block of wood, uh, but both of them following essentially the same policies. Uh, unless, of course, Sir Keir is going to try and take us back into uh, the European Union. That would be a genuine difference, and one which would not a B to Keir Starmer's advantage electorally. Sorry that call was so short, Richard, but I literally have run out of time. I've only got 14 seconds to say for me, it's been marvelous. I hope it was also for you. And if it was, to come back next week at the same time, in the same place, and bring another listener or another viewer with you.